Okay, everybody, you wonder where you are? Well, this is Michael Nesmith. I can tell you where you are. You're on the internet, and you're listening to Alan Allen Texas Prairie Chicken Home Companion Podcast, which is sui generis among all of the swarms on the net. I'm telling you, Al, it's leaven. No, no, it's got to be Levine. You sure? I know. Listen, it's like unleavened bread with no yeast in it. I'm telling you. Maybe it's Levine. I know. Listen, what? What's that? What, uh, what, are, you, what are you eating? Maybe it's... Uh, wait, what's that? Uh, hey, it's that phone. The phone's ringing. You should answer it. It's a good thing I'm here in my Batman tights. There's another reason I'm here in my Batman tights, but we'll get to that in a moment. It's that phone, sir. It's time to take a call on the... Prairie Chicken Hotline? Fan phones, uh, fan phone. David Levin. I I told you it was David Levin. Yeah, sure you did. Uh Uh-huh. And now that we've got that all taken care of, welcome to the Texas Prairie Chicken Home Companion Monkeys podcast, episode number 19. Can you believe it? Now, David, we're sorry we so mangled your name in previous episodes. And let that serve as a humble apology. Well, listen, you know... He's gotten more pub on us than any other fan we've had, except for maybe Jen. That's true, and uh, Jody, of course. And, Absolutely. Uh, then there's uh, Jamie and... Uh, you mean Jaime? Jaime Del Telgren? Jaime the Robot? That's right. So, Jaime Lick Maneuver? So you, uh, I beg your pardon. <laughs> you trying to get that sensor back in here? <laughs> uh, no, Mr. Cheatham will never bother us again. He's floating at the bottom of Lake Erie as we speak. Hey, you don't, don't know nothing, I don't know nothing. You <laughs> got right. it. You know, you got that right. Capiche? All right, so why am I dressed only in Batman tights, you may be wondering. Alan's backing away. Why am I wearing dark sunglasses? Because you're Mm. wearing your Batman tights. Well, they're a little shiny. A little shiny. We've got a special episode, an episode that ties in the monkeys to comic books, which are now all the rage with these superhero movies and TV shows and hijinks. This actually might be right in your wheelhouses, both of them. And why is that? Well, because... In case you didn't know it, kiddies, my amazing podcast partner is also a published comic book artist of some well-renown. I uh, discovered comics at a very early age in the early 70s and always wanted to draw them. And flash forward after years of hard work and study and all that good stuff, I got to draw for Marvel and DC mm-hmm. and uh, lots of other companies. But I got to put Archie. my... <clears throat> oh, that's true. Yeah. And we're going to be talking about Archie very soon. Uh-huh. In this very special episode. But no, I got to achieve my childhood dream and draw for those companies and draw Batman and the Avengers and all those good guys. But this episode, we're going to talk about the connection of those characters and the artists and writers behind those characters with our favorite prefab foursome. That's right. And we have a very special interview coming up later that we conducted. Uh, for those of you who uh, are comic book fans as well, the name Don Glute should mean something to you. He is... He's one of the most colorful, most creative people I've ever met, we've ever talked to. I mean, this man has an imagination that rivals somebody like a Stan Lee or a Stephen King. Somebody, he's just that good at coming up with stuff. And his connection to the monkeys will be revealed shortly before we go into said interview. That's right. So, uh, speaking of comics, my friend... um, Yes. I think we should tangent for just a moment. Sure. Because you and I both have been comic fans for a very long time. I started a whole lot long, younger than you. I started reading them at age three, but mine was reduced to Richie Rich, Hot Stuff, 
You got to start somewhere. That's true. The Harvey stuff. But um, I have vivid memories of a little store up in the northern part of Charlotte that's been long since gone. The guy used to carry the huge, like you've seen pictures on in um, on Facebook of the big comic book magazine things behind the counter. The guy used to let me go in there all the time and read, and this is 64, 65, so I'm reading stuff that not knowing what I had, then wishing I could go back there and swipe every issue <laughs> because I'd be set for life. Yeah, Multiple copies. That's right. So, But the industry itself lost two huge names in the last two weeks, and one being the great writer Harlan Ellison, who has written for everything, comic books, Star Trek, which is another one of your favorite loves, and he was a great science fiction writer, if I remember correctly as well. Twilight Zone, I believe. Mm-hmm, indeed. But the biggest loss of them all was one of the na- the great names of the Silver Age, and that being the legendary Steve Ditko. Right. Ditko worked for Marvel Comics. Of course, he had a career before that, working on a variety of different types of comics. Charlton. Right. Har- I think he even worked for Harvey as well. It's been, it's been posted recently on Facebook. A lot of love for Steve Ditko uh, recently. Uh, he's most famous for being the co-creator with Stan Lee of The Amazing Spider-Man. And not to mention the man behind the phrase, the, by the hoary hosts of Hogoth, I think I'll order a pizza. Let's explain from whence that phrase has slithered. Yeah. Well, okay. in, in Stan's case, it might have been slithered at that time, yeah. Now that's from a character Steve also co-created called Doctor Strange. That's right. For those of you that have seen the Avengers movies and the movie of the sick character by the same name, plug. Now Steve also was interesting because he went on to do lots of other comics work after the 60s, but he adhered to a set of personal standards, a lot of them kind of uh, molded and dictated by his belief in the Ayn Rand philosophies of objectivism. Objectivism? Yes. Or objectivism. Objectivism. See, now you can't even make me say it. And he's one of those guys that didn't, quote, sell out. Mm -hmm. He wanted his artwork and his, uh, his work in general to speak for him. Right. Uh, granted, very few interviews, did not do conventions. There are maybe a half a dozen photos existing of him. I equate him to the comics lo- uh, version of Greta Garbo. He just wanted to be alone. He just wanted his work to be out there. But mm-hmm. don't forget, he's also responsible for the original Captain Adam in, Char- in Charlton. Right. And didn't he create Hawk and Dove as well? Um, you know what? I'm not sure. I know he was the artist behind the initial issues. The initial and I issues, think yeah. he wrote... Those first issues, and Hawk and Dove was a very now topical again book about two brothers, two superpowered brothers. One was very hawkish and leaned to the right. One was very cerebral and liberal and leaned to a nonviolent left. Which was at the time it was created was perfect timing because of the late '60s and the conflict over the Vietnam War, where you had right. pacifists and and people who weren't pacifist or, or very aggressive uh, about the war, but. You know, it was it was timely. You know, and the characters of Hawk and Dove have reappeared over the years, you know, dating back. Uh, Hank Haywood, I get not. Yeah, Hank Haywood became uh, the monitor. No, was it not the monitor? Um, oh Lord, I just went blank. The character, the main character in Armageddon, but it's you know, anti-monitor. Anti-monitor. Yeah, there you go. Even I read that back in the day. Yeah, but I'm the one thing that I I'm. I don't have a lot of stuff that has Steve Ditko art in it. I do have a Thunder Agents that he helped, uh, a compilation I picked up recently that had like three or four issues that he helped draw. But the one thing that is really cool, and Billy Mummy talked about this on his page, there was an 80-page giant 
uh, story, uh, issue uh, 92, I think it was, Mm -hmm. where Billy Mummy wrote a Spectre story that Steve Ditko drew, penciled. Oh, wow. I have a copy of that 80-page giant, and it's really cool to see. He was just so simplistic, but everything worked when he drew it. Everybody was thin. Everybody was... Even even if you look at the Superman uh, poster they did for Superman 400... Yeah, his his characters were not really the musculature like of an Ed McGinnis who has muscles on top of muscles on top of muscles. And that's the reason Stan Lee favored him over Jack Kirby drawing Spider-Man. He wanted a normal, fairly normal looking normal, teenager, teenage kid, yeah, that was not super muscular and stood you know six and a half feet tall. Yeah. Steve Ditko did co-create the Hulk and Dove with writer Steve Skeet, mm-hmm. who you will be hearing more of yep. in this episode. Steve. Hey, there's a monkey's tie-in to Steve... D- Six Degrees of Steve Ditko. What do you know about that? There's a monkey's tie-in to everything. <laughs> but goodbye, Steve Ditko. You stuck to your principles. You did some very personal comics that, uh, you know, spoke of your political and societal beliefs when you could have sold out and just, uh, you know, taken the money. Outside, and, of, uh, outside of Kirby, he's the greatest, in my mind the greatest Silver Age artist there was. Right, and he's been a big influence on my own work. Uh, Taught me the importance of drawing hands well. You can't hide hands. True. And like that. So rest in peace, Steve Ditko. Amen. So on today's panel, we're going to discuss the connections between the comics and our favorite prefab foursome, the monkeys. Well, let's start with the most obvious things that fans think of. The show itself, probably the most obvious connection is a very memorable guest starring role by one Julie Newmar as April, the soap. laundromat girl. Soap. 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 I'm glad she, oh yeah, she, she actually had soap. a health scare issue. She's back to feeling herself again, which is really good. And Julie is a one-of-a-kind actress. Now, of course, what is her tie-in to comics? She played none other than Catwoman wow. on the 1966 Batman TV show on ABC. Now, see, if if they could have combined her looks and her beauty with Eartha Kitt's attitude, you'd have the perfect Catwoman. There you go. Sticking with the Batman show. Of course, we had famous actress... Famous actor? Can you tell I'm still thinking about Julie? Burgess Meredith appeared on The Monkees in character as the Penguin. Now, if you notice, he's not in his exact makeup because he doesn't have access to the exact makeup, being on a whole different uh, studio. That was on the Monkees Blow Their Minds episodes with Oracula starring. Right. See, now what it was is I think Monty had dibs on the nose for that episode. So Probably. Use it. Uh, guys, we only have one nose. Uh, Flipboard. Oh, you're your master. Uh, the, uh, that guy's supposed to have your nose, master. <laughs> uh, you see now, I got, you see uh, Burgess, Monty doing the thing with the, I got your nose, I got your nose, I got your nose. <laughs> Sorry. Guys, can we trade noses? Now, let's stay with the Batman show. Of course, everyone knows the famous Batmobile. Designed by famous custom car fabricator George Barris. Then there's the Monkey Mobile, which a lot of people think was designed and built by George Barris, but was actually built by Jeffries. Now, Jeffries was, he started out as a famous pinstriper in Hollywood and, and customizer in that way of cars. You know, oh, so he's the one that we have to blame for all those pinstripe suits that gangsters wear in the movies. I got you. He's not so tough. <laughs> what makes him so tough? The pinstripe suit he wears? Yeah. It's got yeah. real pins in it. That's right. All right. I'm no Davy Jones. 
Um, Little metal bottle tops. Now, Jeffries worked on the design and initial building of the Batmobile, the TV Batmobile. Um, but the studio wanted the car sooner than he could deliver, so he turned the project over to George Barris, who hired others to finish the fabrication work. I think some of the confusion comes because George Barris later bought some of the monkey mobiles and made some of his own for touring and traveling. You can still see him in some of the Barris museums. But that was all Dean Jeffries, and Dean later designed the monkey's dune buggy you see in Head. Mm-hmm. I think those were supposed to be the next big thing that never became the next big yep. thing. Now, let's stay on the Batman page. In the actual Batman series, Case of the Missing Monkey, they're trying to break into the hospital, and Mickey, in a dramatic moment that shall never be forgotten, says, Hand me the bat hook. <laughs> to which Mike says, what, what, What's with this bat hook thing? Just climb the ladder. <laughs> More famously, their wonderful Frogman and Reuben the Tadpole Batman Prince. spoof. And if ever there's been a dead on spoof, this was it. Mm-hmm. Love that thing. Yeah, I just love how Mike no sells the pun- the fake punches, yes. <laughs> or is it like this? As I like to call it, the seven second radio delay where they throw the punch and then five seconds later Mike turns his head. But, right. You know, crutch. That's <laughs> maybe we should break up the furniture and stuff. I, I... <laughs> but no, people forget Batman was a huge show in 1966. It was a mid season ABC replacement show. Mm-hmm. Took the world by storm for that first year, and so many people did spoofs. Mad Magazine. The effect is still being felt. So pervasive was the lore and the legend of the Batman show until fairly recently every superhero live-action project had that feel of it. It had to be camp in some way. It had to be... Mr. Terrific, Captain Nice. Even Wonder Woman in the 70s. Greatest American hero. It had to be somewhat spoofy and kind Mm -hmm. of over the top. You're right. Not until Tim Burton. Now, in the comics, of course, things had changed. You know, Batman had returned to his roots. Neil Adams. Almost from the early 70s. Almost the, the, the time the show went off the air. Yes. But it took a long time later, 1989, with the Tim Burton movie to get him back to uh, his original roots. Okay. Now, wait a minute. Yes, go ahead. I have, I have, I have a sidebar. Two sidebars on Batman real quick. Go ahead. All right. So, the first one is a question. Which Batmobile did you prefer? The one of the first season where the fire in the back spun... Or the one in the last two seasons where it just went... I like the dramatic uh, early mm-hmm. fire burst of the Batman. Atomic battery just to power, turbines to speed, Roger ready to move out. Okay. And none of the movie Batmobiles compare. All right. Do you know the legend as it goes as to why the Batman series was so campy? Yes, it involves uh, the old Batman serials, which we will also be mentioning soon, and you, oh, Hefner. Well, wait a minute. Now, it meant it revolves around the first one. The one we're going to talk about came later. This is why I keep you around. The original Batman serial, 1942, I think it was, 41 mm-hmm. or 42, starred Lewis Wilson and John Croft as Batman and Robin. Douglas Croft. Douglas Croft, sorry. Um, do I get a cookie? Yes, you do. You get a Kirshner. Hey, wait a minute. All right, so... As the story goes, William Dozier showed that serial to a bunch of his friends one night, and it was so bad, so over the top, so campy, so lame, that they all lost it. They were all laughing, but it got it got a great reaction, but it got the, the wrong reaction, I think. And what they reacted to was just that kind of over the top. Mm-hmm. The, the villains are so bad, let's boo the villains. The heroes are so good, let's cheer the heroes. Mm-hmm. 
which even by the 60s was kind of a passe attitude. And at the time, it was anti-Japanese uh, slanted because the villain was it was an American actor playing a Japanese Dr. Daka. Yes, not but, uh, PC. No, it wasn't no, PC. No. But at the time, it was so over the top and so bad that it just it got such a positive reaction from the crowd that Dozier had shown it to that he said, hey, let's do this. This is how we need to do it, and the rest is hysteri- is a hysterectomy. Right. Well, I heard it was a screening of it at the U. Hefner. Uh, really? Oh, Playboy was it U. Hefner? Okay, could have been, yeah. And other things. ABC was already looking into doing a, a comic book in some sort, whether live action or uh, animation in prime time. So everything just kind of gelled together like that. What was your second? I guess that was your second That was Batman. the second one, yes, indeed. All right, let's well, we'll go. Come, we'll come back to the second serial later. Oh, yes, it all ties in. Let's talk about... Everyone's famous teenage monster, Richard Keel. I would do this room in... Pews. Pews, thank you. I couldn't remember the line. 60%! That's my favorite line. (laughs) You want 60% of your earnings. 60%! All right, Richard Keel. Everyone knows him. He's most famous, not just for this role, but years later as... Jaws. Jaws. James Bond movie. He goes after Roger Moore. He's also very famous in uh, one of the great Twilight Zone episodes. To Serve which, which, Man. That's right. And one of the most chilling episodes. And of course, you you youngsters, uh, you know him with the Adam Sandler. Yeah. Uh, Happy Gilmore or something? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. But how does he tie into comics? Besides his large, hulking appearance, hey! Hulk, wait a minute. Did you know? Did you know? Richard Keel was the original actor tapped to play the Hulk in the TV show. And there, it got to be to the point where, did he have a, a reaction to the makeup or it just didn't work because he wasn't muscular enough? What happened was one of the uh, one of the producer's kids or somebody on the set had their child out during a scene. Um, there's a famous lake scene where the Hulk is trying to help a young drowning girl. And the young man on set said, Daddy, that's not the Hulk. Because they had Keel in the ripped shirt and the green mm-hmm. makeup and the wig, the fright wig. And what they realized was they got a guy who was very tall and very menacing, but he wasn't muscular. Yeah. That's when producers Kenny Johnson and the others decided, let's audition some bodybuilders we know. Yeah. And the rest is history. But Richard Keel was the Hulk briefly. And in fact, in that 1977 CBS pilot movie, in that lake scene, there's an overhead shot where the Hulk looks up a giant tree that he is about to rip from the ground as a way of making a sort of bridge for the girl to uh, to grab hold of from the lake. And it's Richard Keel. Interesting. So he does appear briefly in... The original pilot for The Incredible Hulk. Getting back to the monkey show and comics references, one of my favorite moments in... Is it Find the Monkeys with Hubble Benson? The great Ballantine? Yeah, Carl Ballantine, yes. A certain mild-mannered reporter waits patiently while the monkeys audition and audition and audition in a phone booth. Remember phone booths, Hyman? Hyman! Hey! Who's got a dime? I need to make a phone call. Give me a dime. They didn't return my dime when I uh, when when Jimmy hung up on me. I'll have to mail. We'll have to mail you a check, sir. Please give us your name and address, and we will mail you a check for ten cents. That mild-mannered reporter waiting in line turns out to be none other than Superman. That, uh, something like that. Superman. That's right. Another monkey's reference. Also, also, in one episode, Case of the Missing Monkeys must have been a monkey fan writing that. Um, Peter utters Shazam. Mm-hmm. 
Amira breaks, and Peter then others. Well, seven years. Now, seven years of bad luck. For Captain Marvel. Now, wait a minute. Yep, yep, yep. I have to go back for a second. I just remembered another tie-in. Mm. Okay. Um, you remember the, was it the Monkeys Get Out More Dirt episode? Remember it, I was in it. I think it's the one where there's a, a very mild man, a uh, very small-looking man comes in, opens up and dumps one. Uh, they're doing like a, a parody of a commercial at the time where right. he drops a... Uh, uh, a couple of detergent pellets into the washer. Now right. comes this gigantic arm, and he's fighting it off. And then he he puts the uh, he he puts the uh, box on his arm and does the bicep pose. Right, flexes his bicep. That, my friends, is Wally Cox. Oh, and that's got a comics tie-in. There's no need to fear. Underdog is here. It's hip, 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 and away I, I go. go. That's right. The world's first poet. We first, we we have the operatic superhero with Mighty Mouse. Now we have the only Shakespeare-sounding poets poetry spouting superhero in underdog and i didn't realize re- until recently somebody had a little uh, blurb about this and it's one of those things that you realize years later and you go oh of course like certain song lyrics underdog is a play on like wonder dog mm-hmm. and of course pro- probably somebody said what about wonder dog how about underdog that's a real term yeah um never got that until recently but and i know william daniels of boy meets world knight rider and uh, St. Elsewhere fame. The second Incredible Hulk pilot. He did um, Mr. T- uh, he did Cap- was it Mr. Terrific or Captain Nice? He did Captain Nice. Captain Nice. Wasn't Wally Cox Mr. Terrific? No. Okay. I just finished reading an article from one of Michael Urie's fabulous books. Mm-hmm. It was somebody else, but they're okay. modeled after that kind of milk gotcha. toast. But yeah. Kind of wimp guy. Wally Cox was uh, Wally Cox was phenomenal in, in Underdog. For you younger kids, imagine an even lower level, even meeker version of Don Knotts. Mm -hmm. All right. Bless you, sir. You're humble and lovable. Back to the monkeys. Who can forget the monkey men? Hey, he can fly. He he can fly, (laughs) yeah. You didn't tell me he could fly. He's going to ask for more money next time. Just watch it. But, and it's funny because Peter did the, the did the break the fourth wall wink and smile before Christopher Reeve did. That's true. <laughs> a good uh, 10 years there. Yep. Monkey men have been immortalized more recently at, with those, those action figures we won't mention. But also, mm-hmm. superstar comic book painter Alex Ross featured them in the DC Comics miniseries Kingdom Come. And... The Marvel Comics miniseries, Marvels. That's true. Yep. They had not the Monkey Men, but the Monkeys in the background. Mm-hmm. Also painted by Alex Rawls. With the Beatles? I, th- I, th- I, yeah, I think everybody. they were at Reed and Sue's wedding, but I'm not 100% yes, sure. Yes, I think you're right. But yeah, it's funny. We talked to Alex Ross years mm-hmm. and years ago, back when the, the big comic book convention called Heroes Con. As a matter of fact, I think it was the year after you and I met. Probably. Because he was there. And he used to have, if you look in the, if you have a copy of the Marvels and look. The collection. The collection. And look in the very back, there's a picture of, there's that famous four poster of the guys above his drawing table. So we actually did get to talk to him about it. He was really cool. Um, Of course, we asked him to interview for this. And of course, he's too big now. So. And the poster is the famous orange background poster. um, The 1976 Monkey's Greatest Hits LP used the same Mm -hmm. picture of the same session. Yep. Uh, a picture from the, the same, same session, he's trying to say. Now, our own beloved Mickey Dolans. He was a childhood fan of... Black Hawk! <laughs> that's right. Mickey revealed in his book... I'm called, a believer. You are? I didn't know that. Oh, that's the name of Mickey's book, yes. Um, 
He was a big Blackhawk fan. Of course, I was able to give Mickey a 50s Blackhawk comic at a local appearance in the late 90s. 96. Mickey embraced me fully and unashamedly mm-hmm. when I did that. Um, yeah, he, he struck it rich for both of us that day. And he asked, and of course we've covered this on previous episodes, of both of us, but he asked me how I knew. I said I read your book. Um, every now and again you hear rumors of a Black Hawk movie uh, in the 80s. Spielberg is supposed yeah. to be involved with that now, so that that makes it one step closer. Well, to I heard Spielberg in the, in the 80s, and, and back then Dan Aykroyd was going to be involved. This is, again, 30 years ago. Yeah. Um, Mickey was in a little show called Circus Boy, which had its own Dell comic yep. in the 50s. We're get back to Dell comics in a moment. Let's stay on Circus Boy. Mickey, on that same show, worked with an actor named Robert Lowry. No, Robert Lowry. Where had where? What topic could we have touched recently that hmm. I, something about Rice Krispies or special? Oh, cereals. Yes. Cereals. Yes. All right. So shall I? You shall you or shall I? You can tell them. Okay. So as we discussed earlier, the 1942 Batman serial with uh, Lewis Wilson and. Douglas Croft. Douglas Croft. As Robin. As Robin. Was the reason that caused William Dozier to come up with a campy idea. But there was a second Batman serial, 1949, called Batman and Robin. And uh, Robert Lowry played uh, Batman. Who? Yes. And the one thing I've noticed about how bad the Columbia serials really were, those were absolutely the worst fitting masks on both Lewis Wilson and Robert Lowry that I've ever seen. I think in some spots, some fight scenes, the masks are actually twisted around front mm, yep. like a child's hood on a jacket. And one last connection between yes. Batman and Superman mm-hmm. for this last serial. Lyle Talbot, the great character actor, played not only played Commissioner Gordon in the second Batman and Robin serial, he was the first man to ever portray Lex Luthor on the screen. Superman versus Adam, Adam Man, Man, 1950. Very good. Mm-hmm. So Mickey worked with a screen Batman. He did. And there were two other, you know, I realize I'm digressing, but um, there were two other actors, in the, the two other lead actors in that series, Noah Berry Jr. and Gwen Big Boy Williams, were also both very big B-Western and serial actors. Right. Noah Berry did a song called Call of the Jungle, and it, he played a Jan of the Jungle which was a story serial taken from a story in a famous magazine called Argosy at the time. It was kind of like a Tarzan-like character. So there's another comic tie-in that has nothing to do with the monkeys, but you know. Now, before we launch off into uh, the monkeys in print in comics... And but wait a minute, you forgot one very important... That's where I'm going. Oh, okay. There was an actor on Monkeys in Manhattan. Yes. During the room mix-up hijinks... He played the uh, room service waiter. Say his name. Olan Soule. A very, again, a very meek, mild-mannered, dark-haired man like Wally very Cox. Very short, very bald, wore glasses. Well, not too bald. He had a... No, he was bald. You may know him also on The Andy Griffith Show, other shows, but he later, not much later, became the Rick voice Gotham. the voice of Batman. Mm-hmm. The famous filmation cartoon that mm-hmm. used Casey Kasem as Robin. Yep. And, and Ted Knight as, you know... The Joker and others, but also... Meanwhile, meanwhile back at the Hall of Justice... <laughs> Mayor? Lou? Lou? Mayor? Ted Baxter, WJM News. I'm sorry, that's a flashback. Sorry. So there's that connection. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> should, should I bring... 
Mm-hmm. Sh- should I bring up the commercial we discussed while we were having lunch today? You can. <laughs> you can. Olin Soleil was not only a great radio actor, he also did a lot of commercials. And once in a while, if you check YouTube, there are people that post compilations of 60s and 70s com- television commercials. And lo and behold, there's one of Olin Soleil, a man who I respected and loved, uh, loved a lot, drinking prune juice. Oh! Holy crap! Yes. I forgot another comic tie-in yeah, with Olan Soule. Prune juice, holy crap. Okay. Yeah. No. Um, the 1950s TV show Captain Midnight. True. With Richard Webb. He played the scientist Ichabod Mudd. Right. Right. I remember that. I never saw Captain Midnight. I just read about it. So popular was Olin's Batman voice that he continued to voice the Cape Crusader in the 70s and 80s on Super, Super Friends. Friends. That's right. And the various incarnations. He also kept Casey Kasem around. Mm-hmm. Look, look, Batman. It's the Riddler. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, and of course he was also famously shaggy. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's get to the monkeys themselves in comics. Now... When the show got popular, there was a blitz of paperback tie-ins, and most of those used comic strips or panel illustrations. The monkeys go ape, the monkeys go mod. That first one is called The Monkeys. Now, one of the best of these is something called Love Letters to the Monkeys, mm-hmm. which had original Jack Davis illustrations. Matt, one of Mad Magazine's finest, along with Don... Martin. Martin, thank you. And, uh, of course, Mort Drucker. Mm-hmm. Sergio Aragones. Yes, but anyway, Moving Love Letters to the Monkeys uh, featured, of course, Jack Davis art. Now, you may have also seen Jack Davis. Uh, he did the, wait a minute, correct me if I'm wrong, he mm-hmm. did the original for the the first TV ad that they the NBC put out there. Hey, they're swinging, they're mod, they're the monkeys. The NBC promos, yep. That's right. Mm-hmm. Now, um, Jack also, you know him also from, Mad, like we said, Mad Magazine. He did a ton of ad work, mm-hmm. TV guide covers, posters, you name it, Jack Davis drew it. Very prolific. If you don't have love letters to the monkeys, look it up. Some great stuff. Now, the monkeys were new on the scene. Jack didn't exactly have the greatest handle on them, but it's still great illustration. I don't think, honestly, maybe outside of your next, the next person you're going to talk about, mm-hmm. I've seen the different incarnations of those comics, and they don't look a hell of a lot like the guys in most cases. You mean what the recent monkeys Archies things? Uh, beside, well, yeah, well, outside of the Mike Allred stuff, you know, the, the Mike Allred cover, yeah, that no. But I'm talking about like, um, you're you're going to mention the great Jose Delbo next, correct? He's coming, yes. All right, all right. So, mm-hmm. but if you look at the other, the other, one of the other artists was Jim Aparo, who was what most. You're getting way ahead. Uh, of get at me. I skip. Okay. <laughs> okay. Scratch that. Reverse it now. Like like Alan just referred to, let's talk about the monkeys getting their own comic book from mm-hmm. Dell Comics, yep. publishers of Circus Boy and many other TV tie-in comics. A lot of people collect these just for the photo covers, because mm-hmm. usually the covers are the best things about them. Now, the monkeys comic had great art by Jose Delbo, who'd go on to work for DC Comics on Supergirl, Wonder Woman. He drew the Gold Key Yellow Submarine tie-in comic book. Yes, he did. Later on, Transformers, Thundercats. And I thought the likenesses were very good. They were very serviceable. You knew mm-hmm. he got a big clutch of stills from oh, yeah. the show. And, you know, these guys weren't watching the monkeys. They were old. They were like 35, 40, you know, old people. Which, back then, that was old for this stuff. Yes, so right. They were very close to claiming Social Security at that point. What's funny about this run of monkeys comics, it ran longer than the show. The last issue came out in the summer of 69, strangely reprinting the first issue. Mm-hmm. So this is post 
wigged out, Mickey with the big fro, Mike with the big pork chop sideburns. Imagine you're picking this up for the first time and you're seeing first season monkeys in the comic. You're seeing Mike with the wool hat and going, what the hell? Great, uh, great covers. Some stills that um, have only appeared as covers. Yep. Now, what's funny is Jose Delbo did not draw all of them. When the show switched over to the second season, they kind of reflected that in the comic, and there's some great kind of off-kilter art, but its uh, I'm not sure who drew it. No one seems to be able to uh, pinpoint mm-hmm. who drew it. And that. the thing of it was, with those comics, especially some of the later Dells, mm-hmm. there's no, there, there's no uh, splash page with, uh, mm-hmm. what do they call it in the business? Um... Where they where they say the the art the the writer the penciler the inker the credit box thank you yeah see that's what he gets for working in the business I yeah. they didn't have credits which yes. was not unusual in comics back then that was another Stanley innovation to really hype the artists and writers and make them known and make them stars to the fans very true now at the same time we were seeing lots of overseas monkeys comics in the UK they had annuals mm-hmm. big hardcover collections of pictures and puzzles and custom comics yep. Some of that stuff's hard to identify, but there's some very attractive art. Some of it looks like Dick Giordano, mm-hmm. which is a famous... Uh, it was a famous person in DC legend. Right. And all this stuff, folks, is on my Big Glee blog. I mean, any of this stuff That's right. you can find. Just type in the search box, Monkeys Comics, mm-hmm. and this stuff will come up. And that's bigglee.blogspot.com. Right. Um, now, my own tie-in with these comics is, of course, I was too young to have bought this stuff as a kid, but in the summer of 1976, we had a guy that, that sold downtown. He had an old bookshop. He sold pulps, pulp magazines you know, from the 30s and the 20s and some old comics, which is where my interest was, and he had a ratty copy of one of the Monkeys Dell comics, and I thought I had found gold. Yep. Plus, as a young budding artist, it was easier to draw the Monkeys when you could look at another artist's interpretation and go... That's how he draws this feature. That's how he draws that. He's broken it down to its mm-hmm. simplest form. Um, and even as a kid, I realized it captured the feel of the series. For example, you know, you got scenes where the guys are just in different clothes the next panel. Um, you know, the wacky... Suddenly they're, they're on the desert dressed in uh, desert gear. And, mm-hmm. and of course in comics, that's not quite as arch and uh, spectacular as it is on, on a show where it's happening. Where you hear the glissando. Right. Or you're seeing it in, quote, real time. Now, how do these comics tie in to more recent events? When you watch the video, she makes me laugh, whether on the computer or at live concerts. The screen images, that's generous amounts of Jose Delbo art yep. from those 1967 Monkey's Dell comics. Which I thought was really a cool way to, because there was no way they were going to be able to do just a regular video. You know. Right. Right. Mickey can't go romping at 71. And, you know, it's what do you mean? Like, I can romp at my age. <laughs> Whoa, was that some kind of a statement? No. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, you may be asking yourself, that's all fine and dandy. DC Comics with Batman and Dell Comics with Monkey's comic books. But what about... <laughs> that too. Yes. What about... We'll cut that out, don't worry. What about... Uh, Marvel comics. You know those people tearing up the movie screens these days? Oh, yeah. What do they have to do with hey, the monkeys? Hey, Al, yeah, what about Marvel and the monkeys? Yeah, what about them? No, um, Marvel put out in 1967 and through 1969 a great humor... Wait a minute. What? Are you talking about that revolting development? My Aunt Petunia. No, it was a comic called Not, Not Brand Ash. 
which was a play on not brand X. Mm-hmm. Again, old commercials would have this thing. Would you rather buy Tide or, or Brand, brand X? X? Well, you see you know, that in the Monkey's Rice Krispies commercial. He had Brand X. You know, I, I, yeah, I, I'd like to try Brand I, I think Brand X was better. You never hear that. It's no. Now, um, the monkeys were mentioned a few times in the comic. There's a great scene where Thor and the gang in Asgard open their doors. Wait a minute. You mean the mighty sore, right? Uh, that's, that's what I'm they call them. S- you make me so sore. That's right. Charlie America, the Incredible Bulk. Love it. A lot of the great Marvel artists got to draw humor, which is a treat. And Jack Kirby mm-hmm. had a real knack for it. Jack Kirby drew the story I'm mentioning where Thor and the gang open up Asgard to tourism, like Disney World. Big crowds rush in, and in one big crowd scene, you can glimpse... Not the right, monkeys. Dino does... He, no, no, yeah, right. Peter, Mickey, Mike, and Billy. No. Uh, uh, Davy. Davy. That's it. Um, so imagine the artists who originated and drew... Co-originated and drew Thor and... Fantastic, Fantastic Four. Fantastic Four and the X-Men. All the, here he is drawing the monkeys. The new guy. The guy The guy who helped create Darkseid drew our heroes. Yep. Yep. Wonderful. Now... Um, in the regular comics, Marvel's non-humor comics, the X-Men seem to mention the monkeys a lot. Probably Roy Thomas trying to get in with the kids. I'm down with the kids. Now, Roy, we love you. We yeah, love come you. to think of it, yeah, I do remember him. I, I do remember, probably, I think it was Angel that mentioned, uh, Warren Worthington that mentioned the, the guy's name. So It's on my, my blog where they're at a discotheque and I'm a That's believer it. is playing yep. and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. Now we got to get to one of the most famous comics, Monkeys Connection, the Archies. Hey, gang, it's the giant <laughs> jukebox. <laughs> sorry, you mentioned that A word. I'm sorry. Yeah, anyway, um, as you know, certain promoters came to Don Kirshner and said, can't we have a monkeys that doesn't talk back and has no pretense of artistic leanings whatsoever? I've got this perfect song for them. It's called Wham Bam Shangalang. I beg your pardon. No, um... As we know, the Archies were created out of whole cloth and studio singers like Ron Dante. One of the great vocalists of that period. I think he's the only only man to have four top ten hits with four separate groups that didn't really exist. Right. Um, cut some really great pop, let's face it. Sugar Sugar is a heck of a song. Tracy by the Cufflinks. And like the Monkees, had a show ready to go to promote it that purported to be all about the band singing these songs. Of course, in this case, it's an animated fictional group in, in all ways. And, of course, the Ar- actual Archie's comics would mention... In fact, there's one story where they meet. The Archie gang meets Don Kirshner. And Reggie, I think, says, It's the man behind the monkeys! I had the paperback version of that yeah, in the 70s. The fact, yeah, I remember. I remember seeing that because you posted it, I think. You mm-hmm. talked about something on Mr. Lodge saying, Really? These, these kids actually have talent. Oh, of course they do. They've got marvelous skills. So, of course, there's that connection. Um, and, you know, after the monkeys, no one, no one really points this out. Isn't it funny how we got that big explosion of shows, mostly animated, where there had to be a musical romp in the middle, even if the stars of the show were not made out to be a group or singer? Scooby-Doo. Like a dog, a lion, a, yes. a, a baboon, and an elephant. Scooby-Doo, Banana Splits, um, everything up to what, the mid-70s, like, yeah. it's Amazing Chan and his Chan yep, and Clan, was, Every, yeah, um, everybody. The Bugaloos, the, um, right. even some of that Sid and Marty Croft, the H.R. Uh, Puffin stuff. Right. Hey, dude, you know what that stands for, right? <laughs> dude, I listen to this show because I really like TCPBPB. 
Now, come C-H-D. on. Don't be mean to Jamie on that, okay? Don't be mean to Jamie. Jamie, you're like Butch Patrick trying to get our names straight. Even we can't get it straight. That's right. Now, of course, let's go right up to last year, this year, the Archie's oh, Monkeys please. crossover. Do we have to go back into that because that was just... The Archie Monkeys crossover. It's still on my to-read rack. The cover's great. I got the Mike Allred cover. Yep. The insides, not so much. No. Now, Mike Allred is somebody our age. He goes back and he's worked for Marvel and DC. Madman. But he created a famous independent comic called Madman. Yep. I guess what? Most people would know it kind of sort of like Freakazoid. It looks, yeah, it's got the Captain Marvel lightning bolt for a costume, but he wears a Freakazoid mask and he's, yeah. I thought it was a cool, uh, right. a cool comic. Red Rocket Seven. He's really a great artist. He has his own very unique style, but he is very, very good. So. He can get likenesses. Uh, to me, he has very a very sixties-ish well style, a pop, uh, like the Marvel pop art style. Could be. Um, and you know, let's not forget to mention this: the monkeys. I think had a layover in a airport. I think in Chicago. Because their clothing dovetails with a lot of the pictures where they're romping around Chicago landmarks. Mm-hmm. Yep. And somebody, of course, went to the airport newsstand and got a couple issues of Green Lantern and World's, World's Finest, Finest in 1960, late 66, I think. Mm-hmm. And you can see this on my blog. Mike and Davey mm-hmm. are reading them in the airport. They're on the plane reading yeah. them. And the joke is, you know, they're, they're reading comic books. Ugh. Well, if you think back, because if you, you know, the some of those early romps where they're jumping over the fountain... I think that was shot in Chicago because yeah. they were interviewed at WLS Radio, I believe. The famous pictures and coming and yeah, going. From Peter, the, Peter trying to get out, and right. you see right in front of the call letters, and yeah. Mm-hmm. And they're wearing a lot of the same. They were in the J.C. Penney stuff. They must have just flew in and just did all this mm-hmm. stuff very quickly. Yeah. Also, um, DC Comics in the '60s, they had their own comic book that they were trying to put off as more of a teen magazine, but they published it in comic book size. It was called Teen Beat. Later turned to Teen Beam, probably because they realized there's already a magazine called Teen Beat or Tiger Beat. Or, <laughs> and yeah. that featured like maybe a poster of the monkeys. I've got them myself. It wasn't yeah. a lot of monkeys content. Mm-hmm. But didn't Michael Urey covers this in his great book? Wasn't there a. There was some sort of a monkeys parody in, uh, in DC, in, in Marvel. Stop the tape. Oh, wait. Now, wait. Right, hook, wait. Hook, for DC. Camera. They did something called the Maniacs. That's it. That's what I'm thinking of. Which was in the, the vein of the monkeys. You know, yes. had a wacky drummer, wore a hat. You know, you had had a girl singer. And um, on one issue, Woody, they got the rights to, to Woody Allen uh, being like a guest star. In he, well, you, yeah, I, 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 it was because Chico needed the money. I, 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 the tambourine and the maracas. <laughs> and the, I, 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 I'm just too I, short to I, be a teen short, idol. I'm even shorter than David Jones. There are no short <laughs> teen idols. Okay, also, let's, let's stay in the 60s. Charlton Comics, we mentioned him earlier in conjunction with Steve Ditko. Yep. Recently passed Steve Ditko. Captain Adam Blue Beetle. They Bless had you. a publication called Teen Tunes. Mm-hmm. Now, they had short monkeys comics before they realized Dell Comics had the official rights. Mm-hmm. And these were drawn by future Batman artist Jim Aparo. Yep. Aparo would be one of the guys that would bring back in the 70s the, the dark Batman. Next to Neil Adams, he had this great... The Spectre. Realistic look, the Spectre. Yes, Aquaman. you know something about him. Um, so it's weird to think that this, quote, realistic artist would be drawing monkey stories. And to be fair, the likenesses were not great. Well, yeah, I mean... But the one thing I... They were lively. I understand. Yeah, but is, is it me or did he draw a lot of very thin, long chins? Lantern jaws. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, 
to see Mike with a very long chin. Yes. It's like, really? Looks like Mike crossed with like the, the brawny paper towel guy. Yeah. Another thing that makes these interesting, they were written by future Aquaman writer Steve Skeets. Mentioned him earlier in conjunction with Ditko's Hawk and Dove. Yep. And what also makes these stories memorable, they wove within, I guess they thought they were being cute. The writer probably went out and bought a clutch of Monkey's current, then current albums, and in each story they wove in song titles. Mm-hmm. Peter falls down the slope and utters, this just doesn't seem to be my day. They do their laundry and they, it all comes out with the colors drained. Peter goes, you know, shades, shades of, gray. of gray. Yes, yes. It's, was, life can't be shades of gray, Mike. Now, and it, it doesn't always be you. And it sounds as awkward as, as I'm making it sound. Yes. They're very awkward comics. You can see them on my blog. Mm-hmm. And like that. Um, you know, a robot blows up and Davy replies with, you know, this just doesn't seem to be my day. Girls are named Mary and... Valerie. Valerie, yes, yes. Now let's blast forward. In the 90s, there was all that talk. Those of you that read Monkey Business Fanzine, there was all that talk about... A monkey's cartoon and comics and things that Rhino never did. Talk of reprinting all the Dell comics. Yep. Which we still haven't seen, have we? It would have been interesting to see how they would do a monkey's cartoon because I used to have, remember, I had a, a t shirt that had the animated images on it. Right. And they really were good. I mean, they were. Mm-hmm. They were. I don't want to say Rankin Bass, but they were. They, they were. They were really modeled good. after the Beatles cartoon. Yes. Yes. And I've but got it the really same good. shirt. Yeah. Mm hmm. Now let's talk about my own monkey's art. I've done some work that has, has appeared on the covers, had appeared on the covers of Monkey Business Fanzine, the late lamented MBF. Yep. One of them, a group shot which you once owned, I think. It was taken from the uh, 96 uh, card set, and it was the uh, vision of all four of them doing what am I doing hanging around. It was kind of based on that, yes. Yeah. Well, it was, It's one of my favorite. It was. It's always been one of my favorite pieces of yours of all the stuff I've seen you do. A fan called Scott Murray. <laughs> I made that sound so formal. Scott Murray, a monkey's super fan, used my art to make a custom guitar neck, like a wonderful engraved guitar neck on his wow. famous monkey's logo guitar. That's on my Al Bigley blog, which is my artwork. It's called... AlBigley.com? It's, well, you can see it from there, yes. Go yeah. to AlBigley.com, you'll see a button for my blog. Just search monkeys. Just my chat button. I've also designed most of the web banners you see on the Monkeys Live Almanac page. Yes, you have. Boy, man, I just and got something else. Isn't? Didn't you design um, the logo for a, a, a podcast? T C R P H nine. Bingo. We love you, Jamie. That's right. Yes, I did. I do our, our artwork where you see it. The 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 the, the, the what do you call it? The Facebook uh, banner. Yep. All the things, all the shout outs when you hey, see a new episode. You yes. know what? That logo would look good on a t-shirt, don't you think? I think so. We'll get to that later. Most recently, I did a two-page illustrated spread for Back Issue magazine for Michael Urie, former DC editor. That was the bad guy's issue, right? I think so. Like the the jerks in comics. Gee, I wonder why you put me in that uh, that issue. No. You you know what? Outside of that, you know what I love about Mm -hmm. that? About side of your Mm two-page spread? You know what I love about that particular issue? What's that? It reprints the greatest Justice League International Keith Giffen, um, Kevin Maguire run. Where uh, Green Guy Gardner tosses his ring to somebody and gets ready to fight Batman. Batman takes him out in one punch. I missed it. I I'm missed so the depressed. Punch. Black Canary, yes. I missed it. You've got I'm to so know depressed. the uh, the comics and the characters to, yep. to make that work. Anyway, sorry, sorry. Um, no, that's a great magazine that covers a certain period of comic books, and mm-hmm. I illustrated a two page spread on the Monkeys Comics Connection. A lot of it I use for this very uh, episode. I use it kind of as a crib sheet, but of course I elaborated on it and like that. 
Um, now, do you want to talk about, do we want to backtrack and talk about some of these serial notes you've made? We can if you want to. I mean, it's, you know, they're, they're stretching to be tied. They're, they're tied more. Like, well, you know. Go ahead. All right. Do it. Do it. So, all right. For those of you that know and listen to this thing, I'm from the wrong era, as you will. I've, I've been a fan of uh, cliffhanger serials from the 30s, 40s, and 50s for a long time. There actually is a connection to those couple of connections that we can stretch the monkeys in comics. So, Besides the ones we mentioned. That's right. If you remember the uh, Monkey Mayor episode where Peter goes to the guy and is wanting to have Michael's name skywritten. We want the eye to, we want the son to dot the eye in Nesmith. Get me Rickenbacker. His penmanship's better. The actor playing that uh, role is William Benedict who was a very big serial actor. As a matter of fact, he was one of the co-stars played the sidekick in the greatest serial ever done, the the most polished and everything, the Republic 1941 serial, The Adventures of Captain Marvel. Shazam! And uh, one of the things that we uh, we talked about, um, Frank Coughlin Jr., who played... I, I actually... Did I ever tell you a story? I got to meet Frank Coughlin Jr. at the very first uh, Western film fair I ever used to remember. They used to have it up at the hill. Sure. And he was blown away by the stuff I knew. It was really, he was just the nicest guy you could ever imagine and talked to me for a good 25, 25 minutes. And, and was, I highly recommend his book, They Still Call Me Junior. Mm-hmm. And for people our age, they also know him as not just a serial star, but the spokesman for Curtis Mathis. Curtis Mathis, yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the, darn, the most expensive TV set. And darn well worth it. Something like that. Yes. Yeah. Yep, that was because uh, he got started in the business at age 10. Right. A very early age. Like That's why they call him Junior. Right. But he like was in a number of. He was in another serial. Uh, also did like the last of the Mohicans, oh. which was a, the James Fenimore Cooper novel. That the last movie they did was with Daniel Day <coughs> Lewis. You okay <laughs> over there? Yeah, I just can't stay his name. So he's not one of my favorite actors. But moving along, the other tie into the comics not only uh, was that uh, if you've ever seen it or you can YouTube it. Uh, if you're a fan of the old filmation and the old 60s cartoons, the voice of the lead villain called the Scorpions, what they tried to do in those days was they wanted you to come back and not, they wanted you to confuse you, and they actually dubbed in the voices of the villain on a number of, uh, a number of serials. This particular one was dubbed in by the great Gerald Moore. Talking about Captain Marvel again. You're talking about the adventures of Captain Marvel still. The main villain, the Scorpion. That's right. Um... With the power of these lenses, I can turn this man into molten rock. No one, not even Captain Marvel, can withstand it. I can dot the I in Nesmith. That's right. So for those of you who don't know the name, if you've ever watched the Filmation Green Lantern or Justice League cartoons... From the late 60s. From the late 60s. Or the original and the greatest Fantastic Four cartoons from the early 60s, Gerald Moore played Green Lantern, the Cosmic Crusader, and Mr. Fantastic. Reed Richards. Right. What a revolting development this is, Stretch. By the way, did you do you know where that actually came from? That phrase. What? Oh, it's the, uh, Jimmy Durante. No, no. It actually came from the original Life of Riley radio series with William Bendix, who was uh, in the Babe Ruth story. Interesting. What a revolting development this is. Good night, Mrs. Calabash. Wherever, Wherever you are. Hacha, hacha. <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm mortified. <laughs> All right, so enough of these weird ass impressions. But yeah, that's the tie-in to. Um, roundabout way can tie it to the monkeys and I guess that wraps up almost wraps up our comics versus monkeys retrospect however one more thing we should bring to light you mean but wait 
There's more. There's always more. That's right. Um, you have something very special that you set up for this particular show what, as the as the crux for this show. The crux? Can we say that? Yes, we can. Okay, that's right. No more sense. Remember, Mr. Cheatham is floating at the bottom of Lake Erie as we speak. With Mr. Webster. Everyone in town. Yes, we have had the privilege to interview Mr. Don Glute, who is an entertainment professional. He's written so many things. He's uh, he's worked on kid shows from Land of the Lost to Shazam mm-hmm. to so many more. Uh, going back further, he's written uh, for Marvel uh, Comics. What was the one one book he wrote that really was... Uh, His most famous claim to fame, he wrote the novelization of Empire Strikes Back. That's right. Back when novelizations were a big thing in those pre-VCR days. Yeah, the last good Star Wars movie. I, I, I like Jedi too, but yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Oh yeah, that reminds me. Mm-hmm. Uh, looks like our buddy Billy D. Williams is going to get a bump in his... Uh, autograph fee from what uh, I understand yes <laughs> for those of you who don't know I know we're probably not breaking anything uh, Billy D. Williams has signed again to star as Lando Calrissian in the next Star Wars movie big deal and the reason Alan's going on like this we uh, we bumped up against Billy D. at the uh, horror Mad convention Monster party yep. right where we were out to interview Butch Patrick which yep. you can hear in previous episodes yep but Don my connection to Mr. Glute is um as a young man watching the 70s Monkeys reruns, I had no idea that the minute I turned off those reruns and opened up the latest issue of Marvel Comics, The Invaders, or What If, written by Don Glute, yep. that there was some kind of Monkeys connection. How can this writer writing these current comics be connected to this 10-year-old thing I just watched on TV? Would you like me to... I'll, I'll let you... I'll, now I've, I've, I've usurped... I've, I've been in the usurper long enough to no, um, Don was part of a late 60s group called the Penny Arcade, spelled A-R-K-A-D-E. Yep. Always had to be misspelled back then. I'm glad our the group man with the flaming, And the man with the flaming Craig Smith said, you're arcade with a K and you were. Now, this is a group that Mike Nesmith kind of took under his wing and produced for a while, mm-hmm. right up to having the rehearsals out at Mike's house. Yep. Um, the group released at least one... Yes. LP, mm-hmm. um, great progressive '60s rock. Uh, recently, I said recently, in the last five, six, seven years, there was a great compilation called "Not the Freeze." Yep. Um, there's also a book about their lead singer Craig Smith. Now, you may be saying, "Why does that name sound familiar?" Well, Craig wrote. That's right. And in fact, I have a tape which I'll play in just a bit of the Penny Arcade rehearsing that song, which they later let go of because that bubblegum group, the Monkees, did it. But here's the thing: uh, Do you remember the? Uh, you remember the interview that we took from Andrew, where we had the uh, the 321 KSU just in time with the real Don Steele story about um, the girl I knew somewhere. Mm-hmm. Also encased in that interview was uh, Nez discussing the Penny Arcade. And at the time, he says he remembers that being that the group that encompassed what the Southern California sound was of the 67, 68 era. And with all the, you know, not necessarily the garage band sound, but it was the, the typical Southern California sound. They had it, you know, they had it down to a science. That was what reflected it the most. Right. 
And the band just kind of petered out. The lead singer had a few problems. If you look up, there's a great book about uh, Craig Smith mm-hmm. that details his his issues. He yes. went missing and for many sad. years. I mean, it's it, it starts out so great and then just implodes. He went missing for many years and uh, just just a very sad story. But it's a hard read, but I recommend it. It's a, it's a great it's a great book. Getting back to Don Glute early on. He made his own backyard movies back when a kid just needed some play in a Super 8 movie projector and a movie camera. Yeah, and you talk about good stuff, man. For for, for what he had to deal with, Don Glute's amazing. And plus, he was not just a fan of monster movies and the like, but of course, of course a young comic fan. And he made his own movies of Superman. Spy Smasher. Spider-Man later. Mm-hmm. Um, I recommend America. a compilation called I Was a Teenage Movie Maker. It's both a book. It's available as a book and also a DVD, which I have seen so many times. I love it. Mm-hmm. Don also provides uh, commentary. Now, getting back to his work on TV, Transformers, Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends, DuckTales, Superpowers Team, G.I. Joe, X-Men, so many more. Of course, he's written books. He produces his own movies, and he's still doing that today. Very creative man. Absolutely. But we wanted him here because of his connection to Mike and the Monkees. And should we go right into it? Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, it is our pleasure to welcome to the Texas Prairie Chicken Home Companion Monkeys Podcast family, the multi-talented and absolutely engaging Don Glute. We'd like to welcome as a guest to our show, Mr. Don Glute, who has special meaning to me as he brings together two of my greatest longtime interests, the monkeys and comic books. I never knew when, in 1977... As a 12-year-old reading the new issue of Marvel Comics' The Invaders, written by Don, and then watching that afternoon's Monkeys reruns, that those two things had a connection. But we'll get to all that. Don Glute grew up a fan of sci-fi and monster movies, even making many of his own backyard amateur films inspired by those genres. Those fan-made films got the attention of Forrest J. Ackerman, publisher of Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine, which published stills and stories about Don's films, garnering him even more exposure and notoriety. From there, Don went on to a career as a writer for comics and TV, writing for such shows as Shazam, Land of the Lost, DuckTales, G.I. Joe, and so many others. In the world of comic books, Don wrote for such titles as the aforementioned Invaders, What If, Captain America, and many, many more for many companies. Don may be best known for writing the novelization for The Empire Strikes Back in 1980, a massively selling paperback still in print. So why is this gentleman being interviewed on a Monkeys podcast? Well, in 1967 and 68, in addition to all his other activities and interests, Don played bass in a band called the Penny Arcade, a band sponsored by one Mike Nesmith. The band featured the mysterious Craig Smith, writer of Salesman, a song covered at that time by the Monkees also. So, Don, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Very good. Did I miss anything in the introduction? I had to, like, take things out for brevity. Oh, uh, that, was, that was pretty much... Uh, <laughs> I've done all sorts of other things, too, but I think, I think that's enough. I, you know, I don't want to uh, make it too long. Uh, I'm a paleontologist, too, so, uh, and I'm making movies now. So, uh, but uh, everything else is pretty well covered. Very good. And at the end, we're, we're get to the uh, we're get to the point where you can uh, point out your newer activities and and just tell us what's going on now. Okay. My first question: Tell us a bit about you and what generally attracted you to pop culture and and why. 
well, I, I, I think everybody's attracted to pop culture to some extent. I mean, when I was a little kid, you know, I loved cowboy movies, as we called them back then. And then uh, uh, I liked jungle movies. And as I got older, older, I got into science fiction and horror films. And, um, you know, I loved, loved rock and roll. I loved comic books. You know, pretty much all the things that the other kids like. Um, they were more into... The kids in my block were more into sports than I was. I was not really interested so much in the sports or played sports very well. So I tended to, uh, you know, gravitate towards things like writing and artwork. And, you know, those kinds of things came very easy to me. I was, it was very, you know, I was like the kid who got, did the best drawings in the arts classes in grammar school. And, you know, I was writing compositions and, you know, the creative things. I found all of that so very easy to do. I still do. I mean, so, uh, well, the other kids were sometimes out there playing baseball on the street. I was in, <laughs> at home drawing comic books. and That sounds very familiar. Yeah, I like playing sports, too. You know, I was very good at football, and as I got older, very good at volleyball and a few things, but, um, you know, baseball and things, which were their most uh, uh, focused interests, uh, I was never too great, never too good at, so... So that's how, you know, I just had a lot of free time on my hands where I was doing these things I like to do. I like to draw. I like I liked to write. I like to um, act out little scenarios and things like that. I was very inter- influenced by things I saw on television, movies, very influenced by the Little Rascals, our gang shorts. You know, <laughs> I would see them do something on TV, like start a detective agency or something or a railroad, and I would... I would do that, and that was like the organizer. I would do that sort of thing with my little friends, and so uh, I don't know if, if I was that unusual. Uh, I think I just did things other kids like to do, except I took them to greater extents than most kids did. Uh, my my follow up to that, Don, was would be: Did you start a He-Man woman haters club? Uh, He-Man is a word I don't usually use too much anymore because I got in a lot of trouble with Mattel toys over that. But <laughs> oh yes, yeah. Um, yeah, I I don't think I actually called it that, but you know when we were little boys, we didn't like girls, so that came later. That's true. That's true. Well, let's flash forward. Very uh, very much a flash forward. It's 1967. How did you come to join the Penny Arcade? Well, it's a strange. You know, I I'm one of these people that have had phenomenal luck in my uh, many years on this planet. I I tend to be in the right place at the right time. Or maybe it's just that I follow through where a lot of people don't follow through. They say opportunities are never lost; they're just passed on to some, passed on to the next person. And there was somebody I knew who was also a musician, and was at the musicians' union hall, and saw on a bulletin board a notice that um, there was somebody looking for a bass player. And I had just been in a band that broke up not too long before that, called the Wicks. And I was playing bass guitar in the Wicks. And the, uh, so anyway, he said, oh, this is just one of those things. I'm, I'm not going to follow through. I'm not going to answer this advertisement, uh, this notice, because probably nothing's going to happen like usual. Um, why don't you try it? So I said, okay, well, what do I have to lose? So um, it turned out that the people that put the notice up were two guys. One was Craig Smith and one was Chris Ducey. And they had a duo act called Chris and Craig. And they had met 
uh, I guess it was in New York, on a pilot film that they both starred in called The, the Happeners. And I guess they stayed friends. They, their voices were perfect together, uh, and they were both brilliant writers. And uh, so anyway, they're looking for a bass player. And um, so I went down there and auditioned. And at the time, I wasn't very good at I, I kind of learned how to play the bass through Chris and Craig. They would say, how about this kind of line? And I would, you know, I would play it. And, you know, uh, that's, that's how uh, I basically learned things beyond just simple, sim- simple um, strumming, you know, uh, through Chris and Craig. Anyway, I, they, they liked me, and our personalities all gelled. And we had uh, two managers, Asher Dan and um, uh, Sal Bonafetti. And uh, for some reason, I guess they were in the real estate business. And for some reason, they decided they didn't want to manage us anymore. And one day, I saw, standing in the back of our rehearsal room, Mike Nesmith. And he had a conversation, which I did not overhear, with um, Chris and Craig, and uh, and then I got a call, a phone call from, I guess it was Chris, and he said it looks like we're not, we're not going to go through with Chris and Craig. It's, we lost Sal and Ash, but but you know Mike Nesmith is sort of interested. If anything ever comes of it, we'll give you a call back. And then months later, uh, I got a phone call from one of the two, and they said, hey, Mike is going to take us over. We'd like you to come down to his house and meet him. And uh, we're actually going to have now a, a group, a band. It's not going to be just Chris and Craig anymore. We're going to be called the Penny Arcade. So I went over to Mike's house, and um, and that's how it happened. He, we all kind of gelled personality-wise, and um, and that's and that's how the the origin of the Penny Arcade. Very very cool. Of course, um... at least in my origin of my involvement with it, I don't I oh, don't yeah. know how the. You know the whole thing with Mike and Chris and Craig came together, but uh, that they, you know, that's that's how I became a member of the Penny Arcade. Right. A few years ago, I read that wonderful book about uh, Craig Smith um, that flushes a lot of this out. And you mentioned the Happeners, the Happeners show, which didn't happen. Um, but that was one of the many monkeys-like shows that were in the pipeline in the mid '60s. Yeah, I saw that. Finally, they had a screening of it uh, just within the last year. And Craig, uh, Chris was there, and I was there, and um, some of the other people from, you know, uh, Patsy Klinger was there from the Klinger Sisters. And, uh, it was like the monkey sorta, but it was a lot more. It was a fairly serious thing. Right. Uh, it, it wasn't a you know a crazy thing like the Monkey Show was. Right. Well, what were your impressions of Mike then? I mean, you knew him from the show, obviously, but personally, what did you think of him? I liked Mike from the start. Uh, we're both from Texas, except, you know, I grew up in Chicago, so I don't sound like I'm from, I'm from Texas. Mike, Mike did sound like he was from Texas, and I really admired him as a, a musician and songwriter. Uh, very talented guy. Um, we, our personalities, you know, gelled. We, we, you know, we got along well together. And um, I thought some of the songs he wrote and performed... Uh, on the Monkees albums with the better songs like Sweet Young Thing I think is is a fantastic song um, and it didn't have that you know teeny bopper sound like a lot of the other Monkey songs did and it didn't have the process song you know like the Boys and Heart 
numbers that they were doing. So I really admired and respected Mike. He had a very nice wife named Phyllis. He had a great little kid named Christian, who um, was a brilliant kid, very bright. And Mm -hmm. uh, I think uh, uh, Christian's a musician now, too. We actually Um, interviewed him a few months ago. He's... uh, he has a thriving career of his own, and he joins Mike uh, in some of his concerts now. They're doing kind of a revival of Mike's early 70s country band, the first national band. And Christian oh, tours with him, and, and he's really wonderfully musically brilliant. I also have nice political conversations with him on Facebook. <laughs> he's one of those people that can have very sane and calm political conversations. We, it doesn't hurt that we're both on the same political wavelength, but hey. But Christian really is, is a great guy, yeah. Well, now, what about Jonathan? Did he ever uh, go, uh, go into music? I believe so, yes. They're I, both master musicians. Yes. Very I, much. I'd never heard anything beyond. You know, I remember when Jonathan was born. Mm. And uh, so, but that was pretty much, that's when the Penny Arcade broke up. So right. I didn't really follow much after that. Now, your impressions on the monkeys when you first heard them, like you, you mentioned a bit here. And I agree with you. I've, I've always liked Mike's work the best. It seemed more genuine and, and earthy and yeah. rock and roll. What were your very first impressions of the monkeys when you first saw them? Well, I was a serious, you know, rock and roller back then. So like to most of us of that age who weren't little teeny boppers, the monkeys were just kind of a joke. We didn't, you know, think much of them. Uh, I think Mike, I don't know. I'm a, maybe I'm saying this out of class. I had the, always had the feeling that Mike was a little embarrassed being a monkey because he came out from Texas as a serious musician and songwriter and singer, and uh, suddenly he was thrust into this kind of teeny bopper world. And um, but he went with it because the money and the fame was really good. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I, I can't fault him for that. But we never really took it. We, you know, we didn't even believe they played their own instruments or anything. And and at the very beginning, I don't think they did. I think I think they I think they kind of learned how to. Like, I learned how to play the bass, really, with Chris and Craig. I think they kind of learned to play their instruments, uh, you know, on the show. I don't think Mickey was a drummer before the show. I no. think he was just sort of, like, hired to be the drummer. Mm-hmm. And I think Peter was uh, basically a folk singer, wasn't he? Uh, Correct. Mm-hmm. I can't, and, then, and then Davey. You know, it's funny. Uh, I, I'd forgotten about this, or maybe it never really registered, but I saw the... Um, a DVD they had the, the Beatles' first appearance on the Ed Sullivan show, mm-hmm. and Davy Jones is on that show, but much younger because he was doing Oliver at the time. Correct. Yep. Absolutely. I, I managed to obtain a copy of that myself. So, um, will you now this this gives me the unique opportunity to get you to clarify something. Um, and uh, Nez did an interview back in 2006 uh, for Rhino where he uh, Andrew Sandoval brought up the Penny Arcade. And Nez was very complimentary of you guys. He said, you guys had that late 60s L.A. California sound, sound, the California yeah, sound. Yeah. So, but one of the things he mentioned was, did, uh, and the question is, did you guys ever actually perform live? Because what Nez says was he was under the impression that you did, but apparently it was you know, that you guys didn't. Oh, well, we played a lot live. Um, we played some of the local clubs. We played the... Uh, Magic Mushroom, we played Gazaris, we played the Galaxy, we played the Factory, uh, we played, we were the opening act at Century 2000, which was, uh, 
place on uh, a big club that opened on uh, the sun on Sunset Boulevard. So we played a, we did a lot of play. We we even played at a a boys' school once. It was like a a boys' academy somewhere. It was way out in the boondocks, and we we played there because we were playing all our own original songs. Um, and some of it would go into these psychedelic little riffs and things, you know, that would go on for like ten minutes. They they didn't know what to make of us. They right. they wanted to hear you know wipeout stuff like that. <laughs> and, oh, yeah. um, and they actually uh, kind of fired us on the spot and didn't want to pay us. <laughs> and we had driven all the way out, way out. I don't remember where it was, but it was it took like an hour to get there. So we did play a lot of we did a lot of live gigs. We played at the. Um, there was a Screen Gems Christmas party that we played at, and I remember sitting there with Sally Field. Uh, we were sitting there at the same table. She was doing the Flying Nun back then, and uh, and we auditioned actually for um, uh, to be like the house band on the old Peyton Place television show, wow. but we. They wanted somebody freakier than us. We, you know, we were looking. We were, you know, we are wore these blue suits and and all that. And we didn't look like the mothers of invention or anything. So they, that's what they wanted. They wanted somebody that was real, kind of way out hippie looking, which we didn't have that look, and uh, so we didn't get that uh, that gig. But that would have been a great thing to have <laughs> had we been the, the the weekly. They had like a house band that was on it every week on that television series. And uh, so, so, so we were around. The only thing is, we never got any of our records released. We did a lot of recording, and uh, Mike was always trying to get a better deal, and he wanted us to grow. He didn't want us to get stuck doing the same kind of stuff all the time. And so, there were like a few times, record companies, all, we almost signed the deal, but we never got quite to that deal that he wanted. And uh, and then, of course, the monkeys ended, and we kind of ended with them. And uh, and then that was it. The wind kind of went out of everyone's sails. Yeah, but now the music's out there. Finally, after right. decades, um, not the freeze. It, yeah, it's out there on. And and then I found some recordings that we did before we did not the freeze. That mm. totally that we never did again, and and that was miraculous because uh, I found a reel to reel tape marked Penny Arcade, and I, didn't, I said, what, what's this? And I played it, and it was backwards. It was like, <laughs> I said, what in the world is... And it was like, a, I don't know, one of the tracks had somehow flipped when it was recorded, or I, I don't oh, remember wow. exactly what the technical thing was, and I said, oh, it's just a Penny Arcade. And I said, wait a minute, I'm hearing, there's whistling going on here. I could tell it was whistling. So what, what did we ever do that was whistling? And... Um, but I could hear other things that sounded like riffs from not the freeze, but backwards. But they, so I didn't know. I so I sent them to Sunday's Music, and I said, "Is there anything you can find?" I, mean, I don't know what's on here. And uh, lo and behold, I got a call from Su- Sunday's uh, about two or three weeks later. Said we finally were able to retrieve what was on here, get it playing in the right direction. And it was only like on a quarter of a track. It wasn't even like a half a track. And it was all these songs we recorded the first time we went in the studio, way months and months before we did Not to Freeze, including early an early version of Not to Freeze. Uh, 
an early version of Color Fantasy and a few other things, plus a, a whole batch of songs that I'd totally forgotten about. And so those are like the bonus features on the CD. Right. But I, they were sitting around here in my house, and before that, in my previous house, and before that, my two previous apartments that, um, you know, I totally forgot about. They were just sitting there on a stack of audio tapes with old radio programs and wow. interviews I'd done with people and, you know, people in my family saying hello and that kind of stuff. And it, it was totally overlooked for all these years. And suddenly there was this treasure trove of new material. So I think everything the Penny Arcade ever recorded as the Penny Arcade is now extant and available. And that's excellent. That's great. I love that CD. And it's great music. I mean, it is unique to the time, and I enjoyed listening to it the first time. I just sat there with my mouth open listening to it while I'm driving. Wow. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, what I liked about it, too, it was different. I mean, Country Girl is totally different from Lights of Dawn. I mean, there's a lot of variety on those on those songs. Chris and Craig were brilliant writers. They really were. And that was one of the things that impressed me so much when I went down there to audition and I heard all that original material that we were doing. Because, you know, in the past, everything I had done pretty much was uh, cover stuff. You know, we'd go up there and do Rolling Stones and... Beatles songs, and before that, when I was living in Chicago as a teenager, you know, we were doing Elvis and Dwayne Eddy and all this stuff, but suddenly it was a whole new kind of music with some really, I'm really into chord progressions, and anything that's different from the old standard, you know, EAB seventh chord progressions, I, I really admire, and they were doing some really interesting and intriguing things with, uh, the structures of their songs musically and um you know so you know those are great times for me i really admired those guys and and um i think they did some great stuff and i was glad to be a part of that excellent and speaking of their songs what did you think of uh craig smith's salesman and the monkey's cover of that song the funny thing is and you know i never liked salesman out of all the songs we did that was the one i like the least. The reason being, to me, it was just a cliche. It was just the same three chords, you know. And, and but apparently, uh, the monkeys liked it, and Mike loved it. And I, I asked somebody once. I said, I can't remember who I asked. Maybe it was Mike. Maybe it was Chris or Craig. I said, Why? Why? What is the appeal of this song? And they all basically said the same thing. It's it's extremely commercial. It's an extremely commercial song. It was all by the numbers, you know. It was there was nothing really original about it, and and uh, and they did it. Um, I since I wasn't crazy about the song, I really had no opinion about which I liked better, uh, the Monkeys version or or our version. We never recorded it uh, as the Penny Arcade. We played it, you know, when we were nightclubs and things, but we never recorded that one. Yeah, uh, I, and, and I'm sure that the subject matter had nothing to do with it. So, it's like, you know. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Don, Don, for those people who might be uh, monkeys fans who might who've not read uh, the book about Craig's life, we talk a little bit about him, his abilities, and I, I don't want to say how, uh, from what you, from your perspective, yeah, you know, how he changed and yeah, you know, how he allow unfortunately allowed his personal demons to get in the way. 
uh, of what could have been a, a phenomenal career as a songwriter and performer? Well, Craig was a very complex person. And uh, he, he, when he started out, he was with, with the uh, Good Time Singers. And he was a squeaky clean, you know, smiley, you know, guy in the Andy Williams show or whatever the TV show it was that they were on. And um, he had a dark side, I guess, that a lot of us weren't aware of. I found him sometimes kind of aloof, you know. I, we hung out a lot. We went to nightclubs and things together. And uh, sometimes he would just throw, say something off the wall. You know, I'd say, whoa, what, what, you know, what's that all about? And, um, but I think, you know, one thing I've never been able to understand when I hear stories about John Belushi and people like that, uh, the idea of someone who could not handle success that they reacted to it in bizarre ways. And um, in Craig's case, he lucked out in one way by writing, uh, having a number of his songs recorded by, you know, Andy Williams and the Monkees and um, uh, Glenn Campbell. And and he made a lot of money real quick. Uh, he got a lot of fame as a songwriter really quick. And... Uh, to use that money, he went. They traveled all over the world. He got exposed to all kinds of drugs and strange philosophies and religions and things. And I think uh, he just couldn't handle it, you know. And he just kind of went off the deep end. Uh, the last couple times I saw him, I, I I didn't want to really get too close to him. But I was hearing all these stories about, you know, how he shot his father's eye out with a gun or something. I'm not exactly sure what the facts were in that story um but the last time i actually saw him i think was uh there was a revival there was an anniversary now i'm not sure which which came first uh, there were there were two incidents one was there was a anniversary screening of the war of the worlds the 1953 war of the worlds and uh when i came outside of the theater uh he was standing out there talking to somebody, but he didn't see me. And I said, well, I better, I just, you know, after all the stories I heard, I really don't want to get involved with Craig, at least not right now. And then there was, an, then there was another time, and I'm not sure which came first again. Uh, I got a call from him. This one, he was calling himself Matreya. And he said he, there was an FM station that, uh, I think this might have been the last time. Um, it, there was an FM station a local FM station that wanted to play the Penny Arcade album, but he didn't have a copy of it. Oh no, he did have a copy of it. He had a. Uh, he called me up. He said they're going to play it uh, on the radio at such and such a time. So I, I I turned the radio on, and the guy said we have a song called. He didn't say it was by Matreya or by the Penny Arcade. He said we're now going to play a song called Matreya. And it was the penny. It was the not the freeze. And he got about two minutes into it, and he says, "Well, enough of that." And he took it off, and that was the end. And and that was the last I ever heard of. Uh, actually, you know, had any kind of personal encounter with Craig. I understand. And of course, after uh, this interview on the actual podcast, we'll let our listeners know where to find that book, where to find not the freeze. Of course, update them on uh, where to find Don Glute materials. Of course. Now, getting back to that, did you? have really big hopes for the group what, what was where did you want the group to go i wanted you know 
I'll, one of my secret desires ever since I was a teenager, and you know, long before I decided to make movies and write comic books and do all kinds of other things, uh, my I wanted to be a rock star. I would, you know, I would I would sit there at home in Chicago, watching the Beatles on television and the Ed Sullivan Show, or watching Elvis and those early TV appearances, and seeing those girls screaming like that. I said, "That's what I want. That's what I want." And so I learned how to play the guitar. Uh, you know, I was 14 years old when I did my first appearance at a grammar school Christmas show. We did Bye Bye Love and, and uh, Jailhouse Rock and uh, got in a lot of trouble with the nuns for that. But uh, <laughs> I, but that was my first appearance. And that was 1957. What am I talking about? Uh, we were. It was a Christmas show for 19, right before we went home for a Christmas break. And so that was 1957. And and those girls were screaming at the school, the little girls, you know. And I said, this is what I want. So that's what I thought the Penny Arcade was going to turn into because I'd spent all those years in Chicago playing in, you know, high school dances and weddings and things like that. And this was my big opportunity, hey, to make it big. You know, we were hobnobbing with other rock and roll stars and television stars and um hanging out at Mike's house. We used to rehearse at Mike's house every day. And, uh, you know, it, we had a, I, I said to myself, you know, when we broke up, I'm never going to get that close again. Time to move on and do something else. But that's what I hoped. I wanted us to be like, I wanted us to go on Shindig or something. You know, that's a, a, a hullabaloo, those television shows that were so popular back then. That was my big dream. In fact, that was my dream with the Wicks. Uh, we, yeah, you know, we we had a little taste of fame too with the Wicks, but nothing is 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 potentially big as the Penny Arcade, and so it was really kind of sad when it all ended. But and it ended really uh, when Craig left. You know, we we tried replacing him with uh, various people, then we expanded into the Armadillo, but we never had that chemistry. We never had that magic. Uh, Chris never had a partner like Craig after that. You know, and. Uh, so it, it was um, it was sad when it broke up. But we I had high 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 hopes for the Penny Arcade. And I think Mike did too. I'm sure Mike did. Now, was Mike the only monkey that you ever had any interaction with? Uh, occasionally with the others. I had almost no interaction with Peter. Uh, I went over to Mickey's house a few times. I I had 16 millimeter prints of. Uh, Movies. He used to have a 60 millimeter print of Alice in Wonderland that he would run relentlessly. He, he would run it over and over and over again. And I had a, a 60 millimeter print of the feature version of Spy Smasher, the, the movie serial. It's called Spy Smasher Returns. Kane and Richmond. Yes, went, indeed. <laughs> yeah, I knew you were listening. We were so we we went. I went over to Mike uh, Mickey's house. He was living up in Laurel Canyon. And uh, there was something wrong with his either his projector or uh, the loop he put on the film when he threaded it up, and it put some tension on it, and I, it tore the sprocket holes, and that whole sequence oh, with the flying no. wing thing takes off, and I got so angry and depressed over that. Luckily, I was able to replace the footage yeah. um, from the, my source, but... Uh, and Davey, I met a few times. It was it was really Mike, you know. It was, we were Mike's baby, and... And that's the guy who we really knew. I mean, we, we went down to the set a few times, you know, to see the show being shot. But 
uh, it was really Mike that uh, we had the interaction with. Yeah. Well, that's the perfect segue since you mentioned Spy Smasher Returns. That's the perfect segue into the other area of, of your career that I'm I'm fascinated with because you know, I'm I'm not uh, I'm in my late fifties, but I'm I grew up loving uh, cliffhanger serials and B Western. So now now we get into the other area that I that I have expertise in. <laughs> So my my first question is all right. So with cereals, Columbia or Republic? Oh, Republic. Uh, but you know, I I really like the mascots, and I and I, I and there's certain universals. The thing, the, the the problem I have with the Republic cereals. I mean, they're very slick and they're very well made and everything, and the stunt work is great and the Lidecker miniatures are great. But they all, after a while, they all tend to be the same. Mm-hmm. You know, the, they the, the plots. Well, once you, they, once they, you get past Rocket Man, once you get past Rocket Man the, uh, from the moon or uh, uh, King of the Rocket Men, I'm sorry. Once you get past King of the yeah. Rocket Men, they're all pretty much formulaic and 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 budgetary cuts. But yeah, absolutely. Yeah, somebody, a friend of mine once said to me, who was very much in this, uh, a friend named Ron Haydock, who was also a Monster Magazine editor and a rocker. He was a big Gene Vincent fan. He had a band mm-hmm. called the Boppers. And Ron uh, said that King of the Rocket Men was the last great Republic serial. It was, without question. And it's amazing that it starred a guy who was mostly a villain. <laughs> probably because, yeah, probably... and an elderly, uh, elderly leading lady. Or not elderly, but uh, a mature woman. As we May Clark, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the woman well, most well-known for getting smushed in the face with a grapefruit in, uh, in Public Enemy by Jimmy Cadden. And by being stalked by the Franken- Frankenstein monster. Yep. See, it all ties together. Yeah, it really does. Um, do you, um, oh, by the way, just, just, just one, a little footnote here. Speaking of May Clark and Frankenstein's monster and, mm-hmm. in the original Frankenstein movie, do you know who doubled for Col- uh, Colin Clive in that last shot in Frankenstein when he's in the bed and he's re- recovering from uh, his ordeal at the windmill? No, I, doubled him in that? I, I do not. Robert Livingston. Oh, you mean the eagle <laughs> from from well, uh, from the vigilantes are coming, or or from or Stony Burke from the Three Musketeers? Stoney, oh yeah, yes, yeah, yep. That's that's that was one of his early roles. Oh yeah, I heard a lot about him that tore, as he got older, he really got more. Uh, he he was less uh, uh, less of a pleasure to deal with as far as the fans because he he didn't like his B Western work and all that. So, but yeah, uh, I had two friends who went over to his house. Uh, about a year or so before he died, and they just kind of surprised him with a bunch of stills, knocked on his door, mm-hmm. and he let him in, and they were sitting on the couch, and they could see a thirty-eight snub nose under the couch cushion. <laughs> and, like, he was just not taking any chances with these mm-hmm. guys that oh, I, stormed yeah. in on him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then he said, he said, I, he, he complained about doing, taking all these classical acting lessons and he said what did they do they stuck me on a horse and put a mask on me <laughs> so very true so very true so uh so we'll ask that so who was your and before i get into the questions i really want the question i really want to ask who was your favorite b cowboy buck jones no question about it i used to love him tim mccoy and raymond hatton and the rough riders yeah i have uh i have five favorite b western Cowboy heroes, and I'm trying to think if I can remember them all. One is Buck Jones, Roy Rogers, mm-hmm. Bob Livingston, Hoppy, mm-hmm. and uh, Wild Bill Elliott. Yeah, Wild Bill Elliott. Wild Bill Elliott is number one as far as I go. 
Uh, I tend to also lean more toward the the PRC Poverty Row guys. I was a big Eddie Dean fan and Lash LaRue. Really? Yeah. Lash LaRue, yeah. Uh, I, I, like Eddie know, Dean's I, vo- I like Eddie Dean's voice as a singing cowboy. You know, when you get to Tex Ritter, uh, Rex Allen was second. But when you get to you know guys like Fred Scott and um, yeah, Dick Fran, yeah. yeah, they were too operatic. But Eddie was Eddie Jimmy was me. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, but and, you know, I, I really, well, I love. I, if these, if either of these two actors are in that movie, I will watch it. And if they're both in it, so much the better. One is Charlie King, mm-hmm. and the other is uh, Fuzzy Q Jones. Uh, uh, Fuzzy St. John, yeah. I always prefer, yeah. Fuzzy was my favorite sidekick because Lash once said Fuzzy could stumble over a matchstick and then spend thirty minutes looking for it. And it'd be funny yeah, as Yeah, and, and he looked like he didn't have any bones in his body. He just kind of flowed over everything. <laughs> so, all right. So now we let's uh, some of the some of the movies that you made during that time, which you were still making movies while you were in the Penny Arcade or prior to being in the Penny yes. Arcade. Um, you worked with three of my personal favorite people: um, Glenn Strange, who not only portrayed Frankenstein but did a lot of great B westerns. As a matter of fact, his to me. Uh, was his role as Ace Hanlon in some of the Red Rider movies with Bill Elliott. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then Kenny Duncan, who was one of the great henchmen of all time. But if you go back to the two Spider series, uh, two, two Spider serials, he also showed that he could be a very good sympathetic second banana sidekick as well. But my hero of all time, the greatest B-Western baddie, Roy Barcroft. So talk a little bit about each one of those guys and your interaction. I, I'm, I'm anxious to know how you managed to meet these guys. Well, Glenn Strange, I met through Bob Burns. I was out here on a vacation in California. I'm from Chicago. And uh, he knew I was a big Frankenstein fan and a big Glenn Strange fan. And I said I would really like to meet Glenn Strange. Well, then it turned out um, Billy Strange, who was a a guitar player who arranged uh, these boots are made for walking for Nancy Sinatra and did the the Munsters theme, 45, um, and who's not related to Glenn at all, just by coincidence, her names are the same, was having a 4th of July barbecue party with fireworks and everything. So Bob said, uh, Bob Burns said, hey, dude, would you like to go? And I said, oh, are you crazy? I mean, uh, of course I want to go. So we went, uh, we, went we went there, and uh, I, we I were getting out of Bob's Volkswagen. And Glenn Strange is there with the big cowboy head standing right outside the car, big that big smile on his face, you know. He was doing gun smoke at the time. and. Mm-hmm. The first thing he said, come on and have some beans. I cooked them myself. And we just gelled. We, and finally, uh, as we got to know each other a little better at this party, I said, hey, I'm doing this amateur movie idea. Would you mind doing a, uh, a little cameo? And he says, sure, be glad to. And I said, could you do it as a Frankenstein monster? He said, you bet, no problem. <laughs> and then with, with Roy and Kenny, um, Roy was listed in the phone book as a lot of those actors were back then. Judd Holdren, Tris Coffin, the Lidecker's, they were all listed in the phone book. So I called him up, and I had just seen the Purple Monster in Chicago, um, you know, six or seven months earlier. And uh, I, re- I really admired him from that. And uh, and so we uh, we were talking on the phone, and Bob Burns then would have these little get-togethers at his house with old actors and mostly serial actors. We had, over the, you know, for the years, we had Kirk Allen and a lot of other people. And so uh, I, I asked Glenn, I said, I, mean, I asked Roy, I said, 
would you like to come to this get-together? You know, and he said, sure, I'd be glad to. And I said, you, he said, you mind if I bring Kenny Duncan along? I said, no, it'd be great. And Kenny was, I remember, was the first one to show up. So this get, the serial stars get-together was Roy, Kenny, and, and Glenn Strange. And, um, and then I asked, because Roy was impressed that I was going to USC film school. And um, I asked him, I said, well, I'm making a student film which is that Superman versus the Gorilla Gang, and Bob is going to play the gorilla in it. Uh, would you guys mind doing cameos? And uh, he said, no, I'll be glad to. So we all went out to Griffith Park, and Roy kind of showed us how to do do the punches and things, you know. And um, I remember uh, uh, we, we were going up hills and things, you know, by foot, and, and Kenny would complain, wow, Roy... I don't know if I can, uh, you know, I'm not as young as I used to be. And then Roy would go, oh, you big sissy. It was kind of like a <laughs> Laurel and Hardy kind of thing. And Roy would kind of, in a friendly way, sort of pick on Kenny. And uh, it was uh, it was great. I mean, and you know, Roy especially, if you look at some of these uh, things he did after the serials and the B-Westerns, like the, some of the performances and those very popular TV Westerns, uh, or even in... Some of the movies he did after there was one where he played a cavalry guy. I forgot what it was. It was just on uh, TV just a few weeks ago, uh, and he's he's a very good dramatic actor. Um, so he wasn't just the uh, evil guy you saw in those Roy Rogers pictures. And I think, uh, and I think he he admitted this that they would a lot of the dialogue that because if you listen to. Some of the dialogue Royce uh, Barcroft says in those movies, it's a lot more, it's not just let's go to the warehouse. It's, it's little little bits of uh, subtle things, little nuances that just make the characters a little bit more realistic and fleshed out. And I think that was his contribution to the script. Very interesting. And for any of our listeners that want to hear these stories, there are, a lot of them are on the commentary tracks of Don's DVD, I Was a Teenage... Filmmaker, is that right, Don? Movie maker. Movie maker, and there's also a book, yeah. correct? Yes, there's a book and a soundtrack CD. You probably don't know about that. Uh, all that 1950s instrumental music that accompanies the teenage movies, like the teenage werewolf pictures and the teenage Frankenstein movies. Well, I, you know, I, I needed music, and I couldn't afford to pay the, you know, for like Link Ray or. Dwayne Eddy songs that I used to play on records when I would run those movies when I first made them. So I got together with um, David Price. Now, David Price was on The Monkey Show. And David Price, also known as Spider, uh, joined us when we went from the Penny Arcade to the Armadillo. He was a rhythm guitar player, a songwriter, and a singer. So I called up David, and I said, Hey, uh, I need just some little bits of music to accompany these amateur films. And uh, so he said, yeah, let's get together. And he, had a, he had a studio by, by that time in his home. And I went over there, and I hadn't played the bass in years. So I was pretty rusty, so I made sure everything I was playing was kind of simple. And uh, I played keyboards and um, bass, and also we did some, I did some synthesized saxophone and things on the keyboards. And we, you know, the song started getting a little bit longer and, and, and more of a variety. And so... One day I went over there and I said, you know, we got about seven or eight of these already. Why don't we just make full songs out of this and do 12 and we'll do an album? 
So we did an album called I Was a Teenage Movie Maker. It's on CD and uh, it's it's out there <laughs> so with the full you know with the full songs and uh, so there's three things with that title: the book, the DVD set, and the CD. And I recommend all three heartily, very much. Now we'll wrap it up with these questions. Do you still keep up with Mike? Uh, did you keep up with Mike over the years? Well, oh, on and off. Um, after the Penny Arcade broke up. Uh, you know, I saw him a, 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 a show he did in, in Glendale called the Ice House. I went over to his house once with my then future ex-wife, and uh, I called, he was on a radio show uh, about, oh, I guess maybe it must be 20 years ago. It was when I made my first movie, Dinosaur Valley Girls, because I called him and I said, hey, uh, I... Uh, made this movie and we chatted a bit it was a phone-in talk show and we're facebook friends so once in a while i got an email from him or something i haven't seen him though probably since about the mid-1990s which is when i made that film very good very good so i mean i'd like to oh very much so we we interviewed him recently um you know he's got his, his finally has written his autobiography um so he's doing kind of uh press and media for that uh, but he's still just as sharp and witty and, and creative as ever. He's yeah, always been almost, a great inspiration. We, we almost did a convention together, a comic book or a science fiction or some kind of convention together about five years ago, and I was very much looking forward to that. And I don't remember if they, if he canceled or if I had to cancel or if the convention was canceled. Something got canceled along there, and it, it never happened. But I was really looking forward to, to doing that and seeing Mike again. Isn't it funny how all this pop culture now ties together? Again, when I was growing up in the 70s, you know, I had no way of knowing that you, writing the latest issue of Captain America, had anything to do with the monkeys, which is another interest. And now we're sitting here also talking about how uh, the, the B pictures tie into this and, and the music and the people we know from these things and, and what a small world it once was. Well, with me, it was, you know... Um you know, I never really set out, I mean, except for being a rock star, I never set out to really do any of the things I do now. My main goal was to not work in a job. That was my main goal. And anything that I was talented at, you know, able to do easily, I pursued that. And I, I gave it my all. And luckily, I was able to succeed in a lot of different areas uh, that in some ways are connected, in some ways aren't connected. But... Um, uh, it you know my whole main goal I didn't want to work in a nine to five job Amen. where I did the same thing five days a week you know between nine and five and for like forty years or however long it is you know and do something I didn't particularly like to do working for somebody I didn't particularly like or or respect and so I always found some way of getting around that and doing something to turn a hobby or uh, you know a pastime or whatever into a profession and uh, a lot of people just don't you know could probably do the same but they just don't want to take the risk and I've always been a risk taker you know so uh, you know you throw enough darts at the target one on one over two of them are bound to hit yeah it's like every every everybody has two ideas a day like a broken clock twice a day so it's like um yeah the last the last question I have is 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 a little off the wall here so spy smasher versus the purple monster 
Now, I, yes. I'm, I would I'd be willing to bet that Bob helped you get the Spy Smasher costume, but did you manage to did you manage to get the Reddick uh, Purple Monster costume as well for that? Because that outside of outside no, my of mother ca- made, my mother my mother made both of them. It's because of the fact that outside of outside of Captain Mephisto in Manhunt of Mystery Island, the Purple Monster was was Roy's favorite role. Yeah, yeah. No, my mother made those costumes. Uh, I was still living in Chicago when we made that uh, that film, and uh, you know the the, the spy Spencer helmet was just something I picked up at a war surplus store for like a dollar and a half or something, and and my mother uh, made this Purple Monster costume and. I drew all the little scales on the on the gold. It was you know it was gold and black were the colors of it, and uh, so no all, all those those costumes uh, that appear including the Spider Man film I made they they were all done by my mom. Wow. Well, Don, I'm currently into cosplay uh, now, and I I can relate to the things you do to make these costumes look the way they're supposed to look and wear the way they're supposed to wear. And uh, the things you oh, find yourself just, doing. It's way beyond anything I ever oh, yeah. did. You know, the, the, the cosplayer costumes are just, you know, uh, unbelievable, some of them. Oh, indeed. Well, let's wrap it up. Give us an update on what you're up to now and where we can find well, you. Well, I'm, five, five, I'm up to about five feet nine. <laughs> which I've been, no, Perfect. Stupid joke. Perfect. I, I set them up, you knock them down. <laughs> yeah. Um, what I'm doing now, I'm basically, I'm busier now than I... You know, at my age, my God, I, I, you know, half my friends are either dead or in wheelchairs and walkers and things. And here I'm more active than I've ever been. Uh, I'm doing basically two things. Um, I'm writing comic books again. I'm writing a mag- for a magazine called The Creeps, writing horror stories. You know, it's funny. I started my comic book career writing for the Warren magazines, Creepy and Eerie and Vampirella. And now I'm writing exactly the same kind of stories again. Um all these decades later, you know, I started in 69 and now it's, uh, you know, 2018. And, uh, I've written about 35 of them already. I mean, I just cranked them out. I wrote one yesterday and, uh, he's got enough to probably be published long before I'm off this planet. Uh, but I'm also making movies. I got, I just started up a new company called Pecos Born Productions. We have, I just put together a website called, uh, uh, PecosBorn.com is very very easy to find because I was born in Pecos. That's where that name comes from, Pecos, Texas. And um, it we we have one movie out called Dances with Werewolves, and the one in post production right now is Tales of Frankenstein, which will be coming out around Halloween to kind of capitalize on. Um, this being the 200th anniversary of Mary Shelley's novel, Frankenstein. Right. So um, it's an anthology with four separate stories in it, each one taking place in a different time period in a different country, and each one based on a published short story of mine that are included in a book called Tales of Frankenstein. So um, so that's what I've been doing, working on the website, working on the post-production on the movie, and writing more uh, comic books. I wrote another comic book story day before yesterday for the creeps so it's fun yeah i'm having a good time doing that at night not having to write super you know i kind of got tired of writing superhero comics anyway and these are the first comics i've written in in many many years i mean the last ones i did were probably back in the early 1980s and uh and but but i'm having a good time you know we have a, a host character that makes puns at the beginning and the end of the story you know and uh, i it's fun 
Excellent. That's the key to anything is having fun. Very good. Well, thank you, Don Glute. It was an absolute pleasure to pick your brain about these subjects, and we're just happy to uh, have the time with you. Okay, let me know when it's going to be on so I can uh, put the link on my Facebook page. Absolutely, and thank you for bringing back some great memories, talking talking to me about some of the things I love growing up, especially Roy Barcroft. Man. Oh, yeah, All right, here's, here, here's the last Roy Barcroft, Barcroft trivia. You know who his very famous cousin was, I presume, right? Uh, I'm not sure if I do. One, one, he, and the thing of it is, is he never he never really admitted that he was a cousin of Roy's. Thurl Ravenscroft. The voice of Tony the Tiger, and the singer oh, really? of "You're a Mean I, One, I Mr. Grinch." I, I knew that was Roy's la- real last name. Mm-hmm. Yep, th- uh, Ravenscroft. Yep, yeah, they were they were like second or third cousins, but Thurl never admitted to being a cousin to Roy. I guess because of the work that he did. But yeah. But yeah, oh, thanks very much so for your time. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, wait, uh, the, oh, so he if he did Tony the Tiger. Mm-hmm. Was he the was he the guy who worked for Disney? Yep, he was the guy. Yeah, he he's the 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 real bass the real bass voice that you hear. Like, yeah, he, I I didn't know that. Well, well, Roy worked for Disney too. He was did Spin and Marty. Yep, absolutely, and it's amazing. But uh, yeah, when you when you hear every Halloween or every Christmas when you see hear your mean one, Mister Grinch, that's him. Yeah, and he's also was one of the talking three dimensional faces on the. Uh, and the haunted house ride at Disneyland Park. Absolutely, yeah. What we usually do, Don, is we're we're about what three months behind. <laughs> um, yeah. We do these about once a month, but we do have some other interviews in the can. And when we do get okay. these prepped and edited and up um, on our webpage, uh, of course, we hype not just this show, but things that you're involved with. We'll point out um, uh, the, website. the websites for you, but we'll let you, of course, see it and vet it and all that stuff when the time comes. And um, okay. And all that good stuff. So you will not be forgotten, right. and uh, we'll just go from there. Great. Thank you. It's been a fun, it's been a lot of fun remembering all these things. Well, thank you for your time, uh, and it was just excellent. Thanks very much, Don. We appreciate it. Okay. Talk to you later. Have a good day, sir. You too. Thanks. Bye. Bye now. Well, we hope you enjoyed that. Of course, we got into some other subjects, but why not? It's our podcast. and Damn always, straight, Skippy. You can always hit the fast-forward button. That's right. Let's give you a little more information about the Penny Arcade. Um, again, they were a short-lived group produced by uh, Mike. At one time, some of the uh, some of the reviewers said they were like a tougher monkeys. Mm-hmm. The it, it's kind of like a continuation if you took Daily Nightly, combined it with Writing Wrongs, and threw in a little Star Collector. Yes, very much so. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, we got Craig Smith in there now. What's interesting about him? Not only was his salesman covered by the monkeys, but Andy Williams recorded uh, Holly mm-hmm. and Glenn Campbell Country Girl, also Craig Smith uh, songs as a songwriter, yes. Now, if you recall, mm-hmm. do you remember Mickey has spoken recently about the pilot shooting period during the sixty five yes. when the monkeys were when the monkeys pilot was produced. And he mentioned that there was, you know, four or five other series that were being uh, thought of at this time, Craig Smith happened to be a part of one of those that right. got to a pilot episode. And that book talks about that. It's called The Happening, or wait, The Happeners? Yes. Oh, gosh, now I'm blanking. I believe now. it's The Happeners, yes. Right, which was supposed to be like what the monkeys became, but with a little more drama, straight drama. Kind of, the, yeah. A kind soap of, opera mixed with... With the monkeys. Right. 
because uh, we always heard there were a few things going on at the same time as the monkeys, Liverpool, USA, whatever that was. And, and the, uh, the beach surf one that Mickey yes. it was Mickey mentioned, but I've not been able to find anything about, else about it. And I, I don't even think Andrew can find stuff like that. Right. Stuff like that. But it's good. It's good stuff. If you like Buffalo Springfield, if you like that period, it's good. Good stuff. Look up, especially not the freeze, which is a collection of the work. I'll feature mm-hmm. it on our blog page. Uh, along along the same lines, you remember the um, the Olivia Newton John first came to prominence in Australia with a um, group called Tomorrow, right? Where they had they were kind of like the Australian monkeys, I guess you could say. And didn't Don Kirshner helm that? I believe he did. Yes. One thing I didn't mention, bringing it back to comics, in the group Penny Arcade, because of his love of comics, Don Glute was referred to by the rest of the band as quote Marvel. That's because he was a marvelous bass player? Well, his love of Captain Marvel or Marvel Comics. Mm-hmm, indeed. Now, there's another connection to the Monkees, which is? That's right. After the Penny Arcade broke up, um, they formed another group. It was Don. I don't think Craig Smith was uh, was a part of this. It was Chris Ducey, his songwriting partner, was a part of it. It was called Armadillo. And Craig Smith was replaced by a name that all Monkey fans should know, and that's David Price. David Price was one of the uh, the four brothers who was Davy's stand-in. Right, one of the many uh, roadies slash stand-in slash mm-hmm. stunt doubles. Yep. All that good stuff. So yeah, yet another six degrees of separation of the monkeys. Here is a special treat. Here is a song that I thought for many years was a track by Penny Arcade. It is a cut of Salesman either being rehearsed or played back. You're here studio chatter. But... I even asked Don Glute, and he said that the Penny Arcade never even attempted to take a stab at Salesman in any way. Doing a little research, I found out that this is actually Craig Smith, who later released this on an album called Apache from 1971. Craig by then was going under the name, I'm sure I'm going to mangle this, Satya Sai Maitreya Kali. And I'm not going to get into why he was calling himself then. It's all in the wonderful book about Craig's life and work and music. Um, But here it is. Here is, from the album Apache, Salesman. What I'm working up to. Play all the tracks. Do they have a book on this? I hope you're getting all this. Really? Tune it out. Who's seeing that? This is this is uh, Carla. <laughs> Are you seeing the lead on it? Oh. Well, you gonna get over here behind this mic so we can get this on tape. Bring up his voice a little. This is about a dope salesman. I hope this is on tape, man. Really, it's priceless. I can't hear the lead. I'm a, I'm a lyrically inclined person. Right. 
tonight or tomorrow, we'll put on the flute with Charles Lloyd. And you can ping pong some of this bullshit. Got that? Why should we fuck around? Might as well just throw anyway. You know, Alan, I think the fans have had enough of salesman. And There's never enough salesman. Besides, I need an excuse. An excuse? What do you mean? <coughs> you mean... 321 KSJ, Jets in time with the real Don Steele. Time for remix time here on the Texas Prairie Chicken Home Companion Monkeys podcast. Al Bigley, I understand that you have a remix of Salesman Monkeys.
Well, I hope you enjoyed that. I took, uh, I think, just the monkey's backing track and then re-added the vocals with some extra effects, some extra echo. I put in Mike's famous end of song. You got to match two of them together to get one. (laughs) I think Mike is talking about uh, making his own El Zorro. El Zopo. No, he's talking about making his own hot dogs. A problem. Like me, you know, you put them in the bun, it comes out the other side, and it's messy, you wear most of it. You got to put two buns together to get one. And they're hard to smoke. Had to add that in, lengthened it a bit, and uh, like that, just had fun with it, and uh, added some extra drumming here and there. You, you know what? As we all know, Salesman was featured as the romp on the Devil and Peter tour. But you know what the biggest disappointment to that particular video is? That they couldn't say. No, it's not that you couldn't say on television. What was it? It's the fact that all they showed us was just brief little snippets of the Rainbow Room where they where they did it. Because yes. Mike was still wearing the sleeves <laughs> from Love's Only Sleeves. Yes. Sleeves. And the fan is going, hair is blowing. Yeah. Now, also, another time to Chicago, we mentioned them at the Chicago airport in the Rainbow Chicago. Room, yeah. That was later. Those things were later filmed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And those became the Harpo Studios. Yes. Later, which are now defunct. Yes, which was Orpa, Oprah. Good old Oprah. You Oprah! get a you get a gold album. You get a gold album. <laughs> Fine. Wait a minute. Can I, can I bite it like Shushan Boy used to bite the coin? Bless you, sir. You're humble and lovable. <laughs> Thanks, Shushan Boy. You're humble and lovable. Bless you, sir. Little did anyone know that whenever there was a call for help, 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 Shushan Boy became in real life underdog. Sorry. When Polly's in trouble, I am not slow. It's hip, 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 and away I go. Okay, I'm sorry. You wound me up again, Al. You know what? Uh, I'm receiving uh, the, the hotline. The silent phone is ringing. We're getting tons of requests for what fans are really listening for, and that's the contest. Our second big contest. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Wait, well, you seem reluctant. We've got fanzines. We've got... Let me go actually refer to our previous blog page. It's been a while. Well, we can't, we can't, uh, we can't put this off any longer. Contest number two, two. Okay, well, we had to call an audible on this one. Uh, we met with the judges, uh, and they agreed. The original premise was for you guys to leave a, a comment about what your favorite monkey song was and what it meant to you. Well. God lover, Jamie's the only one. Jamie Telgren is the only one who did follow directions, but she of the blurred pits. <laughs> All right, I'll stop. That's a good band name. Here they are, the blurred pits. <sighs> oh, you get vault. <laughs> I'm dying here. I'm dying here. But we decided that it wouldn't be right for us to present Jamie with the prize again. Besides. As giddy as she was about winning the first contest, I have no freaking idea how she was if she won two in a row. She would probably explode 
uh, you know, we, we'd, we'd be, we'd, you know, we would have a problem. We hear from her lawyers that we caused her to fall apart. So, what we did was we went back and looked at uh, at some of the comments about the episode. And once again, let me re- reiterate the prize package here. We have uh, a great uh, from our good buddy Jim Johnson a Hear No Evil Monkeys compilation album cover sticker. Very rare sticker. Very rare sticker. A copy of the Listen to the Band April 1986 fanzine. Two copies of the Instant Replay fanzine. Rare uh, fanzine. Rare fanzine, January 1985 and January 1986. I wasn't even born then. We have a flyer from the Boys and Heart Celebrity Convention, which is really cool, has some great pictures, and a very good conditioned Tiger Beat official August 1968 Monkey Spectacular. This is not a reprint. This is the real thing, guys. And this also, is- shh, don't tell anybody. The winner also gets extra added bonus materials that we dare not mention here. Simply because of the fact that I have no idea what he's talking about yet. It's all coming from his closet. And his closet, it, well, never mind. There's a, there's an old radio reference I won't go into. But never yeah, mind it, what's in my closet. I told you. I told you about that. Didn't I? All right. Just because a man wears tights. Mm-hmm. Multiple tights. All right. So, but, the, but wait, who wins this bonus booty? Wait, that's right. This b- 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 bonus bounty, bounty of booty. Yar, matey. All right. So, the comment that won goes like this to talk about Hank Chicalo and his how should I say lack of affection for Peter and the quote goes doesn't seem that Hank C's gonna have Peter over for dinner anytime soon wink smile wink emoji great interview guys and so the winner goes to Dan and Angie McKenzie congratulations <laughs> I love how you stick that in there Seth MacFarlane is amazing isn't he? but that's an well he's something no, you so, had a great response to the interview. Mm-hmm. Yes, looking back, uh, Hank was maybe not exactly Peter's biggest booster. But uh, is that Brewster Bentley or Bentley Booster? B- 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 booster. All right. So, Dan, if you will uh, send a message t- through the group page or actually send an email to a our... private email, yes. T-P-C-H-C-M-P at gmail.com. That is T-H-C... I drew a blank there for a second. TPC TPCHCMP at gmail.com Just get to us privately in any way yeah, with somewhere. your mailing address and we, may, we will send it to you. We'll Absolutely. get the masterful amount of monkeys merch right to you via mail. Your lovely parting gifts. And that will not in, it will not include a year's supply of squeezy cheese. The greatest faux food in the world. Another great band name, Squeezy Cheese. And, uh, no, nor will it include your supply of turtle wax. Well, I use that on my scalp these days. <laughs> now, wait, we still have, what's that in the corner? Still a pile of more monkey stuff, if oh, I'm not yes. mistaken. So that means we have to initiate contest number three. Three, 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 three. three. Uh, pardon the groan while I reach over here. I always tell him to stretch before each podcast. He never does. I sprained my gnecticazoink. Uh, <laughs> Doesn't do his uh, squat thrusts. Doesn't do his uh, hey, 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 half hey. squats. Yes. That's right. All right. So I, I used see. to uh, go to school with a kid named Squat Thrust. You're killing me, squats. You're killing me. <laughs> Something like that. All right. So what we have for prize package number three, another great limited edition Hear No Evil Monkeys tribute album cover sticker. Right. Very rare. We have... Let's see. We'll save. It'll just do. Yeah. We have some more rare off-brand fanzines. That's right. We have two 
also copies of the rare fanzine Instant Replay April and July of 1986. I'll save this one for last. I'll save this one. All right. right. We also have the 1997 Monkey's World Tour with Peter, Mickey, and Davey. Another similar to the 1987 guide, but we, this is 1997. All glossy pages, rare photographs. Mm-hmm. Great shape. Has a couple of ads in here, which... A little dated. Isn't that, is it still that a cool paint, a cool lithograph? Right. Ads for Mickey's paintings of the day. And did you know that Coco made this into an, uh, a necklace? I thought you were going to say poncho. No, no not a poncho. But yes, it's got, it's got some great ads for uh, Mickey's artwork at the time. It's got a uh, an ad for the uh, reissue of They Made a Monkey Out of Me Again. Mm-hmm. Uh, a great ad for Peter's Stranger Things Have Happened CD along with the two-man band James Lee Stanley CD. Don't let me forget to get a picture of you holding up this booty. Excuse well, me? Wait, whoa, I, whoa, <laughs> whoa, whoa. Back to short buzz up. We now. weren't going to talk about this. pictures. You mean the pictures. bounty. The bounty. Well, booty means prize. Last but by no means least, the winter 1967 Spec 16 magazine, which features the Monkees, the Raiders, the Beatles, Herman's Hermits, Sonny and Cher, Dino Desi and Billy, Peter and Gordon, David McCallum, uh, Chad and Jeremy. Lucy and Desi. No, wait. That's... Biff and Sparky. Right. And a, uh, SJ. Right. But SJ's a moron, so he's only in there for a brief snippet. <laughs> All that can be yours if... if the prize is priced. Is the, if the prize is priced. No, what should we ask for? More feedback? Uh, uh, you know, let me see here. Um, I got to think about this. Mm. Okay. This will test those of you that have listened to the podcasts. We would like you to tell us which podcast episode is your favorite and why. In 120 words or less. You know, preferably in less than 25 words, but you know. Right. But yeah, no, uh, tell us which one you like the best. Very good. Simple as For that. For any reason. Yeah, whatever reason. You know, I kind of like that, that interview, that Nishwash failure. You know, wasn't it great that uh, we got a pat on the back from Mike? We started the episode with a pat on the back from Mike. That's right. From Nez. We got a Nez on the back from Pat. Wait, what? Uh, something like that. Wait a minute. Did you actually do that cannabis and PGF recipe that Nez was talking about? Yeah, it no, sounds man. like you, the colors are back. No, man. I just took some uh, TPC. T-C-P-T. Yeah, man. Quick sidebar. Yeah, man. Quick sidebar. Hit me, man. We talked about, since we brought up Red Roads, for those of you who listened to the Nez interview, you've heard Red on the Nez solo work, the FNB work. I would suggest that you YouTube search for Red Roads because there is some seriously powerful stuff out there from him. As a matter of fact, two of the albums that he did feature his version of The Crippled Lion, which I found very interesting. Oh, yes. So it's very powerful. You know, I might we might call one of those cuts and play it next time on the next show. Episode, oh my God. Dare I say it? Say it. Episode 20? Oh, I feel so old. My gosh. And the uh, thing of it is, we don't have an interview lined up for this one, do we? Dun, dun, dun. Can it be? It's like when Commissioner Gordon and Chief O'Hara... Hugged, them, hugged each other in panic when they realized Batman was out of town and they actually had to solve a crime on their faith in the Goddard Commissioner Garden. Quick sidebar, Neil Hamilton, Commissioner Gordon of the Batman TV series, 
Did you know he started out his career playing villains? And this ties into the serials that we used to do, that we talked about earlier. Yes. He actually played the lead villain in the 1941 Republic serial, King of the Texas Rangers. And how do I know this is so special? Not only does it feature the great Cisco kid, Duncan Ronaldo, in a sporting role. For those of you who know anything about the history of the National Football League, one of the greatest football players of all time, slinging Sammy Baugh, was the lead character, uh, Sergeant King. Robert J. Yates, the head of Republic, thought it would be a great idea to turn Sammy Baugh into an actor. Well, those of you who know Sammy Baugh was an, as an actor, made a great football player. But it's a level, it's a good serial. I like it. It's one, it's one I can actually watch the whole thing. But there, more tie-in. See how it all comes back around and ties in. the separation of the monkeys and Batman. It's all tied together one way or the other. So. And the charge to you at home? Nada. Nada, Buckus. not a thing. Just enjoy. One of the things I wanted to preview is that we have reached out to and hope to hear back from. I got to contact them again. We hope to have one of Davy's daughters, all girls. Uh, my goal: uh, I'm shooting for Sarah Jones in the not too distant future to have a conversation with about their new media site, which preserves uh, the legacy of the Manchester Cowboy. We call that episode "Keeping Up with the Joneses." Very good. That's why you keep me here. And one of the other things that we're looking at also is hopefully down the road. We'd like we're actually going to go for the Dolan's daughters this time. One of the Dolan's daughters, and maybe we get lucky, we can snag Jessica Nesmith. We can snag Hallie Torkelson. Jessica Nesmith. Nesmith Nishwa. Jessica Nesmith. And uh, I'm. We are also hoping in the very near future to have our favorite duo, Circe Link and Christian Nesmith, back on. I thought you meant Chad and Jeremy. But that was yesterday. Another Batman. And yesterday's gone. Yeah. Oh man, it's, it's well, we could do pop references. On oh, I know. Gee, a, a show about pop references, a podcast called like Pop, wouldn't that be a great idea? Yeah, there's only one problem. What's that? Podfather beat us to it. As usual. Absolutely. So. Speaking of which, is it time to do the shoutouts? It the is thank-yous? time to do the shoutouts. Yes. Of course, to the Podfather Ken Mills. Yeah, he will be at the big Pod convention in Knox. Is it Knoxville or Nashville? One, one, one of the major cities in Tennessee coming know. up in August. It's he was there fun. last year. And let's thank all our Facebook fans, now totaling 601. Unbelievable. Who's that one guy that keeps getting in there? Uh, David Levin. Probably. It's David Levine. Come on. Levin. Levin. David Levin. Levin. I'm sure of it. Look, the next time we're going to get a cease and desist, it's David Levin. Probably. Let's thank, of course, our biggest fan and last time's contest winner. Um, you mean that their girl from Iowa? The girl from Iowa. Great Davy song. Uh, yeah. Yes. Telgren. Chelsea, Chelsea, Iowa. Telgren McNeil. Jamie. Jamie Telgren. Jamie. Hello. Hello, Jamie. We could thank, wait a minute. Let's see, it's probably David. The, the hotline's lighting up. I guess we should answer. Oy vey. Yeah, no. It's probably David him. would, no, we've got his name right. So he, why wouldn't he be calling right. again? David Lovin, we got his name right. Yeah. Le- well, let me just Levin. take, let me just take the call and see who it is. Hello, you're on the air. Hello there. Well, hello, you guys. Happy summer. Thank you. Same to you. Is, has, it cooled, has it cooled down at all up there in your area? It's about 90 degrees here, but it looks like it's going to be cooling down um, over the next couple of days. But I like the summer, so I'm just as happy. Well, that's, yeah, it's the same way as us here. We're, we're getting down to what we 
they consider to be the average temperature, which is like 89. So it's like, we're, we're in a cold wave. So. Oh, boy. Well, that's that's good. I mean, I, I'm very appreciative I have air conditioning. Absolutely. But I, I do not mind going out to walk the dog without having a parka on, so I'm good. <laughs> so give us a recap on what's been happening lately and what's coming up. So uh, I, I know you've got some really good reviews, and I know you got some good stuff coming up. Yeah, we had a lot of fun at the Northeast Comic Con. We were lucky enough to have Barry Williams join us to do the Twist and Shout Challenge. But then, in addition to that, he sang a couple of songs, and he was having so much fun on his own, he went and did the Brady Bunch and Sunshine Day. And now he wants to start doing this celebrity karaoke. And John O'Hurley wants to do, if you've ever heard his voice, Mr. Peterman, he's doing the celebrity karaoke now. So we're starting to build our uh, our repertoire here and um, add some names on. And it's been a lot of work. Um, this overnight became something more than just this little fun thing to do. It became something that the celebrities are enjoying. So uh, we have our next one coming up in California where it's Mickey and Coco, um, both doing karaoke and we're raising money for the local police department. So every penny that we raise is going to be donated because apparently um, there are commodities in the police and fire departments that are taken for granted. Things as little as pencils and coffee, um, which we all should agree that the uh, people who are our first um, official phone number that we have to memorize as children, mm -hmm. 911, should be um, having the little things. That's um, not a lot to ask. So uh, Mickey does a lot of uh, donating of his time. He was actually just awarded with an award, uh, awarded with an award. He was awarded um, an award an award from the uh, police department last year um, for all the service that he does um, volunteering for the police department. And so he wanted to give something back. So when this project started, we first started with, all right, we have a place to do karaoke. And then I said, well, we've got to make it a little bit more interesting if I'm going to bring people from the East coast over and make it a whole monkey weekend. Yeah. So, we're doing, I'm actually just designing bowling shirts right now because we are going to have teams when we go bowling. Oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah, some playing around with some, uh, some interesting names right now. And um, then, so we're doing bowling on August 17th with Mickey, and then we are doing karaoke. And then we're, uh, oh, we're going to the Hollywood Walk of Fame to see the monkeys star on the Walk of Fame, and then on that Sunday, we are going to see Coco's one-woman show with her guest star, Mickey Dolenz. So we're doing that in Who? California. Yeah, right? Who? I know. This young guy who's been knocking around California, he's gotten his break by doing the coffee house in Aldina, <laughs> California. Yes, we're going to let, we're, Coco's going to give him a minute or two to perform something, so. Justin Bieber started the malls, this kid's starting in a coffee house. Yes, it's like Tiffany when she mm -hmm. did her mall tour in yep. the in late 80s, early 90s. So uh, this, this young buck is going to get his chance on stage with Coco, 
And Alex, who um, was the piano player on the Monkeys tour, mm-hmm. he's going to be backing up on piano. So we're excited nice. about that. Yes, it's going to be a stretch because karaoke, we're going to be drinking alcohol. And then on Sunday, we'll be drinking coffee. So it seems <laughs> a little apropos for the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, Yes, so that should be fun, a fun adventure. Now, and, wait, wait, before yeah. you, I want to go back to the con for just a second. Now, what, the rumor is that you actually got up on stage. You didn't sing, but you got up on stage. Oh, my God. Well, I always do the hosting of these things only because there's nobody else to really do them. And so the I have a couple of girls that are younger than me, like 12 and 16 and 17, and somehow they wouldn't let me off of the stage. And they go, we're going to make you do Hey, Hey, We're the Monkeys. And I said, oh, no, you're not. And they go, watch us. Oh. And in the meantime, Sandy was texting me to let me know that there's going to be an issue when I get back on stage. But because one of the other girls were live streaming it, I didn't exactly see the text message. So when I got up on the stage, they tried to keep me on the stage. And I was... I mean, I just, I give a lot of credit to anybody. I mean, I'm not a singer. I'm more of like a stander and a, and a personer and a hoster and a, and a talker, but I'm not really a singer. And I was tricked into that. So, um, yeah, so it's, um, yeah, so, so there was a little bit of me singing and dancing up there, not either, but. You know, I took one for the team because I don't think Mickey realized what was going on, that I was mortified, and, you know, so I just kind of had to stay there. Uh, but we're going to not allow that to happen again, but I think in California, they're making me do it again. Yeah, so, somehow I got the feeling that, yeah, once you get out to California, Coco and Mickey are going to have a little influence on you. <laughs> oh, my God. Let me tell you, I'm not real happy about that, but but it is what it is. And then, um, so we have that, and then we have... That's in August, and then September, we are doing it in Ohio. Mm-hmm. Um, we're actually doing it at the venue the day before Mickey's show. The venue was so excited about what we're doing that they are actually helping us um, by allowing us um, their karaoke DJ and their bar and their everything. So they've wow. given that to us. Yeah, so Ohio should be a lot of fun. Um Finley, Ohio. Out in the middle of nowhere. And I mean nowhere. Yes. I said, what are you known for? And she was like, "Um, this event? And I said, okay, fair enough. I said, well, we're going to make it something special. So I think the the closest thing to Finley is Bowling Green University. Wow. Well. Yeah. 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 So did you have to pay an application fee to apply to that college? No. I've driven by it a few times. You got to remember... The ex, ex-wife used to live in Michigan, and ah. driving from North Carolina to uh, North Carolina to Michigan, uh, take seventy-five or no, take twenty-three all the way up to Toledo. Yeah, I've been, I've been past Finley a number of times in my life. Wow. Yeah, I never even heard of it. Nothing but cornfields, darling. I'm telling you. Well, I'll tell you what. It's not. I'm very excited because we have a lot of really good. Uh, fans that are in that area that are all coming out so I'm very excited about that and um, 
Then I think we're working, well, we are working on one for Pittsburgh in December. We have a private one. Mickey and I are going to start doing private events. Um, and we were, we were being brought again to California, poor me, for November to do um, another event there. But that's a private event in California. Um, and it's been, it's, we're, we're just kind of waiting. We have... Um, some video ranch products are uh, coming out. We are we just unveiled the three new um, F and B colored albums, colored vinyl, which Nez is signing. So he's uh, starting to feel a little bit better, and he's going to start getting a little bit of work done finally. <laughs> I mean, I thought he was like you know a monkey man, Super Nez, but apparently everybody has a little bit of uh, of stuff in their uh, in their I guess, um, in their well, I guess, that he has, he has his kryptonite, so. Yes, this was his kryptonite, so he's, uh, doing that, and thank God the, uh, the tour is back on, and, mm -hmm. and, and sales just started for some of the other venues, and so we're, we're really happy to see some progress, um, on that, and, um, just, you know, it's, it's, even though it's not the end of the year, it's we've, you know it's it's starting to think about what's coming up in the end of the year, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so hopefully they're going to announce the new January dates for the shows that we missed, along with another one mm -hmm. uh, that may pop up, and um, and everything seems to be going good on the uh, monkey front. Great. Let me know when I can do anything for you. Same with same, yeah. You you just gotta you know you know I'm there. You just gotta take me up on it. Okay. You got it, my love. All right, love. Talk to you later. Bye, sweetheart. Bye. Bye. Well, you thought we forgot our third podcasting partner. No, she's just been up to her eyeballs. It's not like she's been at a convention, at a Phillies ball game, or hanging out with the real Greg Brady, or, you know. Johnny Bravo. Uh, you know, it, it's not like she's been busy. I heard she sang the national anthem at the ball game. No. He did. Him? Yes. You mean the man upstairs? No, I mean El Delenzio. Oh, that guy. Mm -hmm. Him too. Yeah, he's pretty good too. So. Yep, so. Well, let's thank, uh, we thanked our 600 plus Facebook yeah, followers. You guys have just been absolutely awesome. This is this is great. And you know, we encourage you to refer your friends to the group. If you, if you check and see the list and they're not there, um, this has been a labor of love coming up on two years now. You realize that, man? It's just it's amazing. come flooding back. And I promised myself just one episode where I don't cry. Just one. And here we've gone from a 22-minute podcast to, you know, a, a year and a half. The over-under is Saturday night. Right. And, of course, most of our original uh, listeners are thinking, can you get back to that, please? <laughs> yeah, but we have so little to say and so much time to say it, you know. Right. <laughs> but we thank you guys, each and every one of you, and... I really wish I could figure out what's going on, but the episode 18 has just gone through the roof. It's gone viral, as the kids say. If anybody knows, you know, if anybody knows of a shout out that we got that we're missing, would you let us know? Because this is this is closing in on a th this is turning out to be the highest listened to episode, other than episode one, and episode one's taking off again too. Episode one is just a few minutes of us talking. Again, we're seeing a trend here. Hmm. Yeah, a very short episode. Now, well, also, I guess they enjoy. I guess they enjoyed listening to Hank. Also, our uh, Mike episode has got big numbers. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Yep, absolutely. So thanks to everyone. Thanks to Jody, Ken. Christine. Christine. Jamie, Billy, David. 
Cubby. Fred. Annette. Both Freds. Keo and Deleuze. Um, Melanie. Melanie, yep. Sarah. Sarah. Sarah? Sarah, this is Andy. Did you get me uh, Juanita over at the diner, please? Can you get me Marshall Dillon? Bobby Dillon, what's he going to do? Oh, he's going to write a song about my problems. (laughs) That's for the benefit of those of you that have tuned in late. Now back to our program. Thanks, everybody. Continue to listen and write. We love how interactive the Facebook page has become. Absolutely. We love it very much. And we're going to keep on doing this until we run out of ideas or until until Al has to say the eulogy at my funeral, whichever comes first. Yeah, the less said the better. Yeah, that's right. At this time, it is, it is our legal obligation to advise you that the Texas Prairie Chicken Home Companion Monkeys podcast is a podcast for Monkeys fans by Monkeys fans. We are in no way, shape, or form associated with Rhino Records. The estate of the late David Jones, Peter Tork, Michael Nikki Nesmith, Dolans, Michael Nesmith, Dino, Desi, or Billy. Mm-hmm. Warners, Rhinos, whoever owns whatever they own this week. As Alex to call it, Arista. <laughs> Arista Records Day. I had a contract with Arista. Uh, you were a barista? No, that's Starbucks. I think. All this is a labor of love. Any content used is used only for entertainment purposes. That's right. Um, no matter what you hear. That's right. And until, where you hear it. So until we meet again, comics and monkey book mo- comics and monkey book fans. <laughs> this is Alan Tadpole Williams. And this is Al Frogman Bigley reminding you to save the Texas Prairie Chicken and away. Hey, he can fly. Well, let me tell you one thing, son. Nobody ever lends money to a man with a sense of humor.